Could not be more pleased to have back on the Rich Eisen podcast, Matt Damon. Are you one of those Patriot fans that takes Lee in the Jets and the butt fumbling? I made the Liberace movie this year, so that's fine. (laughs) There's some butt fumbling in that movie, Just a wee little bit. (laughs) Larry David, good to see you, sir. I think a lot of writers can be offensive coordinators. What's harder? If I could write stories, why would I be able to draw up a play? He is none other than Broadway, Joe Namath. If Mark word to get the nod and if he played decently if uh if what a big word there's only two letters huh <laughs> <laughs> bobby Cannavale. i told you my Derek jeter story at yankees atlanta for the world series screaming 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 nothing 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 he doesn't even look at me finally last that bat eighth <laughs> inning yeah. jeter comes up Derek, just turn around <laughs> man just turn around <laughs> Finally, he like dumb. He does the thing with the weight. He's about to go up. He turns around. He looks at me. He goes, "Bro, I hear you." <laughs> Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm Richard Eisen. I don't download many podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the Rich Eisen podcast. Here's your host, Rich Eisen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of the Rich Eisen Podcast, coming to you in the middle of February in between the Super Bowl and the Combine from the NFL Network, NFL Media Podcast Studios. I'm your humble host, Rich Eisen. I'm a Chris Down this week. I'm a Chris Down. I've only got a law. No Brockman. Chris Uh-oh. Law, how are you? I'm doing well, Rich. Yourself? Brockman's in Maine. He is. He's as he uh... said on our previous show, uh, a, a fun show that we had, a post Super Bowl 48 program with Coach Brian Billick, Timothy Oliphant of, uh, of Justified fame. Who was great. Deputy U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens in the flesh. Uh, and then Jeff Schaefer, our longtime friend, big-time Seahawk fan, had to have him on, the co-creator of the league, longtime uh, contributor and writer and producer, occasional director of Curb Your Enthusiasm. He came in here to crow about his... His Seattle Seahawks on that show. Chris Brockman told us that uh, he was taken off. Going to so the he's homestead. Gone. He is yeah. in Maine. I texted him last night. He said it was bitterly cold. Well, I saw uh, his tweet as well. Oh, he said it's not warm. He said something like it is not warm there. Um, you did miss Apparently an f bomb one. Well, last week, and I get a lot of flack for it, and deservedly so, I guess. But I don't think what people realize is like during the Olafan interview. Jeff Schaefer walks in. Yeah. So I, you your headphones come off. You're I'm talking. I'm doing it. I miss it. But I thought we told you that we saw yeah. the, I guess, the the cross section in which, in it, which happened. it happened. I thought we told you that we saw your blind spot and we had your back. Yeah. And even after telling you that, <laughs> even after telling you that, and Brockman even texted you. Later in the day yeah, to give you what he thought was the time code. He took it down. So here was the problem. I How thought, did you miss it? I thought it was time code, and he told me 11-12. So I, I thought about 11 to 12 minutes into the interview. Right. So I went to that, and I found one. And I was like, oh, I had that That's one. That's it. He meant 11-12 a.m. He was looking at the real time because he can't see the time code I have in here. Why didn't he put that? I, I meant, did he say real time? I yeah. The text so, did he say that? Did he, did he make sure that you understood it no, was on the real clock? Yeah, he said real clock. So that's where the confusion – and I obviously can't go back and listen to an entire two-hour podcast before I post it every mm-hmm. single time or else they would never get up. Um, so we rely on earmuffs. Okay. And, uh, well, that was a, a great conversation yeah, with Tim Olafant last week. And we've got a good show for you here today. The Super Bowl forty-eight MVP, most valuable player, seventh-round draft choice, um, what a great story 
Malcolm Smith has, and we're going to hear him tell it in the flesh. He's coming in studio. Yes. Right here. here. In, a, in a bit. And then after he leaves, in studio, one of the greatest actors, one of our greatest actors, certainly from the 70s and the 80s, and now he is enjoying a renaissance and his Oscar-nominated role in Nebraska. Longtime Los Angeles Rams fan, Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern. And we're going to have a surprise for him. Do we? I, well, here's what we'll do. I'll let the fans know this, that I've contacted an old-school Los Angeles Ram to call in. Yes. To the Bruce Dern conversation. Who's now, been on the show. No, no, he's, well, we've had a few. Well, here's the thing here, is that we have... No idea. This person has told me he's never met Bruce Dern. And we have no idea just how deep Bruce Dern's affection is for the Los Angeles Rams. We hear good things. We hear good things. But we we always sometimes hear good things from PR folk. And then then not so much. But you told me, and I didn't know this, he started in Black Sunday. Which I didn't know yeah. much about, yeah. and then look, the movie history. was I know, made in '77. That was not even a thought yet. And but, uh, but Bruce Dern has been in some classic oh yeah, no. films. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I know Bruce Dern from his work, but I didn't know from that. And that's a football movie, a plot of what a Zeppelin going to good Super use of 10? Zeppelin. Yeah, we could say a blimp, but a good blimp, use of yeah. Zeppelin. Yeah, yes, you know that was going to fly into the Super Bowl. Latex can drop a word or two. Every Nicely now and done. Again. So that's coming up on this show. That um, is getting ready for the combine. We're getting ready for the combine here, and run, rich, run. Yep, that's coming soon. You'll be able to give in your videos of you running your forty-yard dash at work, and um, we'll have the best one up on our site. And I'll vote which one I like the best, and we'll try and track that person down and have them come on the podcast. Perfect. Okay, so we'll do all of that. Um, but here we are in our first supposed. Uh, dark Sunday, right? This past weekend where nothing's going on for yeah. the first time. I even tweeted out in the Pro Bowl Sunday that it's my first football, uh, non-football Sunday. People are like, well, what about the Pro Bowl? I just wasn't there. You I was living yeah. in my own head. I was yeah, with my yeah. children, right? Totally. This past Sunday was truly football-free. Nothing going on in the football world. Zero. And then Michael Sam's announcement happens. Yeah. And the entire sports world, including the Olympics, Talk about breaking through static, news static, breaking through a news cycle during the Olympics. But Michael Sam did that, the co-defensive player of the year of the Southeast Conference. No slouch of a college football conference. Not at all. Says that he is an openly proud gay man, as he told Chris Connolly on ESPN, and as he uh, told John Branch of the New York Times. And suddenly the world comes to a screeching halt. Now, I don't know if this is just my way of the world in 2014. But my first time that I saw that, when I saw it on Twitter and I saw it on the news, I thought, so what? I honestly thought that. Now, I'm, I, I know I might be offending some of our longtime diehard listeners. And we don't talk about issues that are considered either social or political on this show. But this has descended upon our world. And in my mind, this isn't a political issue. This isn't a social issue. This is a fact of life. Yeah. Human rights issue. Well, I mean, it's just to me, it's a fact of life. It goes to within reason. 
that you and I, Chris Law, as we walk through our office here and we walk in our daily lives, we come across homosexuals, we come across gay men and women all the time. We just don't know. And I don't care. Yeah. I don't care what you do. I don't care. And it's like my thought was, so what? So Michael Sam says he's he's an openly proud gay man. And my first thought, to be very honest with you, was how are we going to cover this in the combine? I yeah. really I really did. I went straight to my profession and what we're going to do because I know you don't you don't just talk to the New York Times and ESPN and make this announcement and it goes unnoticed. And certainly we saw what happened with Jason Collins and his announcement in the National Basketball Association back in March yep. and the reaction that came from that. Now here comes a prospect, someone that is going to be drafted his in the National Football League. Is still ahead of them, whereas Jason Collins, you know, he did it at the twilight, at the end of his career, and actually never played once the announcement happened. Right, and he there are some who believe that the announcement has caused him to not be employed. Yeah, in the same way that Chris Cluey, who came out staunchly in favor of gay rights, mm-hmm. says that he's been blackballed out of the NFL in that regard. What I found fascinating was that. He told his Missouri teammates in August by holding up a piece of paper. And this is my point. The story goes again that there was a team building, um, a team building, I guess, event that the uh-huh. coach held, where he broke teammates out into groups. And the question was: write down on a piece of paper one thing that your teammates don't know about you. And Michael Sam apparently wrote down the words: "I'm gay." And that is how he told his teammates, who then proceeded to not only not breathe a word outside of their locker room about this, but proceeded to go 12-2 and two and finish fifth overall in college football last year and create an environment in which Michael Sam could be named the co-SEC Defensive Player of the Year. Yep. And that is my issue with unnamed scouts and unnamed personnel executives who in the past 24 to 48 hours said Stone Age things like this is a man's man's sport or that this won't work. See, I haven't seen much of that. You've seen... If it can't work in the NFL, that would be an abomination. Because it worked in the SEC. Yep. Now, I understand college campuses are more liberal and more of an open society than maybe the rest of society. The issue with that is it's not, in my mind, it shouldn't be a left or a right or a center issue. People are gay in this world. People are gay. You work with them mostly. Yep. Odds are you who are listening to this podcast, knows somebody who is gay, whether they're open or not. And the issue is, in some executives' minds, that it won't work in a professional locker room. Why not? It worked in the SEC and the kids didn't tell anybody. That's what's more amazing is that you have 110 kids, you have walk-ons that you know aren't even as, as well... I would say embedded with the team and the fact that none of them slipped it or the fact that he got to be the first one to on a national level say it himself, I think is 
a great thing because there's nothing worse than being outed when you're not ready to come out or you didn't tell your family or you have an aunt or uncle that doesn't know and they're hearing it through other channels. Uh, that's what I was impressed by the University of Missouri and you know all the kids on that football team and administration. They went 12-2. and two. 12 and 2. So how can you sit here and say that a group of 18 to 23, 24-year-old kids they can do it, but grown male professionals who get paid to play football, they can't do it. Because why? Okay, let's take this one at a time. The difference between what I've described in Missouri and what would happen in an NFL team, the difference here is is that nobody outside of the locker room in Missouri knew that Michael Sam had come out as a gay man to them. Now, in the NFL world, everybody knows that Michael Sam is a gay man. So here comes the media onslaught. And nobody's going to want a piece of that. Take a look at Tim Tebow. Yeah. Nobody wants to take him on because they don't want to have the issues that comes with him being on your roster. Let me handle that argument. The Terrell Owens, the whole thing. Let me handle that argument. You can't tell me that a professional football team can't shut the media away from Michael Sam. You've got to be kidding me. Of course they can't. How many times have we seen the Patriots put a cordon around their players? How many times have we, on this network, this media outlet that is owned by the NFL, have been told, you can't have this player? Countless times. Yep. Their availability is controlled. The reason why there was a Tebow circus is because the Jets made him available every day, every practice. They put the Jets screen, the drop-down screen with their sponsors behind Tim Tebow. They made the backup quarterback available. They helped create the circus. Yep. Last year at this time, again, it is apples and oranges. It is apples and oranges, but it is the same fruit, if you will, based on the whole concept of this being a media-feeding frenzy. Last year, we were wringing our hands over Manti Teo. Any team that takes him on, what a distraction in the locker room. The media is going to descend upon him. He's going to be separate from the rest of the 53. That's going to create a major vision within the locker room. Do you want Manti Teo as your teammate? Do we're you want him that. as your teammate? Guess what? None of that happened. None of it. Because he got drafted in sleepy San Diego, where the media has just, it's just one newspaper covering it, essentially. A couple of television stations, a couple of radio stations, and then guess what? He got hurt in training camp. He didn't even play. Yeah. Why would you interview him if he didn't even play? And then after he, came, he, he, he had his press conference, it's over. It's over. You draft Michael Sam. You hold one press conference to introduce him. He talks to everybody. Maybe you make him available in training camp. Don't make him available in mini camp. You make him available in training camp once. And what from everybody has talked about Michael Sam coming in to this draft is he's anywhere between a third and a fifth or sixth rounder. That he's a tweener. He doesn't have a spot. Because he plays linebacker and they don't know if he can train. Right, they don't know. Charles Davis said in our senior bowl coverage, he doesn't think he can backpedal. like a linebacker needs to from the defensive line position that he doesn't cover well. So that makes him less valuable. It makes him just a a mere pass rusher, which is at a premium in this league. If he can sack the quarterback, it doesn't matter who he 
spends his spare time with men or women, you go draft him. Yep. That's why this media frenzy thing makes no sense to me. It can absolutely be controlled. And he has already mentioned, we haven't spoken to him yet. I don't know him from Adam. Mm -hmm. I can only hear what he says. He wants to be known as a football player. But people at the Senior Bowl were coming up to him and asking him because it was an open secret on campus in Missouri that he was a gay man. And here he comes, the co-defensive player there from the SEC is an open gay man to his teammates. It was going to come out eventually. He wanted to control it as well he should. I thought what he said in the Connolly interview was interesting because he said scouts were interviewing his teammates and asking him, you know, they asked him about his teammates and teammates about him. And one of the things that his teammates said, you know, to be honest in the interview process of NFL scouts was, you know, Michael Sam's a gay man. And that's kind of how it started coming out to some scouts. And the word was out pretty much in interior circles. Correct. So he needed to go out and say what he had to say. Yep. So some players, and I have heard this already, are saying, why did he do that? Because most players want to know, can he help me win or can he help me not win? And the one thing that's going to be an issue about winning is if he's about something else other than winning. And that's something other else other than winning is making sure that he advances a cause, advances uh, a belief, puts something above the team. And I'm not just talking about saying I'm a homosexual. I'm saying about this is anything. You yeah. can fill in that blank with anything, any agenda. Just fill in that blank. That locker room in the National Football League will have a problem with that if that is above winning. Sure. but So players want to know. Why did he come out and do this? Because in some players' minds, it's not that big a deal. So why did he make a big deal of it? The issue is he's got to have to lead by example when he goes to his locker room and shows, I've already read articles about this, protecting the team, that he's not going to be the one out there um, going to the media and instead of and, and putting himself in front of the microphones to talk about this subject. Yeah, He just needs to go about his business and show this is just a normal way of life, man. That's it. He's got to do that. All that said, where's the issue with drafting him? Where's the issue? You may have some people in the fan base that don't want to root for your team anymore. If I'm an owner in the NFL, I'm thinking, you know what? Love you. Appreciate your fan, your, your, your fandom. Don't need you. And again, I know I might be offending some people here who, hear, who, who listen to this podcast and may never listen to it again. I'm not, as you know, we don't talk issues outside yeah. of the sports world on this show. Religion, sports, But politics. these issues have visited the sports world here. And that's my point about why my first thought went to how are we going to cover this in the combine. He's going to be out there Monday with the rest of the defensive linemen. How many people are tuning in to hear my thoughts, Mike Mayock's thoughts, Charles Davis's thoughts, Brian Billick's thoughts on diversity, freedom of sexuality. Nobody. Yeah. People it. might want to hear how that's being viewed by the essential decision makers about how will this affect his draft stock. Mm -hmm. We talk about that once. I'm done with it personally. I'm going to tell our producers we talk about it once. That's it. Fans want to know when they see Michael Sam and he's running the 40-yard dash or he's running all these other drills, am I, as the announcer of NFL Network's coverage of the combine, go, well, there's that gay man running the 40-yard dash. Yeah. Oh, by the way, don't you know Michael Sam, who you see there running the, the uh, gauntlet right now, 
even though they don't run the gauntlet. I forget the names of the drills. <laughs> the, uh, oh, by the way, he's the, the, tree. he's the one who came out as, as, as gay. The, no, they want to know. Is my team going to draft him, and will he help me win games? Yep. Most fans will think that. So a lot of this is just a storm of media that I hope general managers and owners and 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 eventually the rest of the decision makers who have to make a decision on him understand this is much ado about nothing when it comes to the end of of the road the 2014 playing season can he help can he play special teams in addition to whatever he does in the defensive line can he rush the passer can he make your team better if he can Draft him. But don't we know the answers? I mean, you're not the 2013 SEC defensive or co-defense player of the year if you can't do those things. Gil Brandt said that he wasn't even his top 100. All right, and, and apparently, what, six of the last seven defensive players of the year from the SEC went first overall? Went first and, round, yeah. Right, and went first round. And nobody, and this was before Michael Sam's announcement. Yeah. I am all for nobody drafting him because they don't think he's a fit. He's not a good enough football player, 100%. But if you're going to sit there and go, we don't want the media frenzy, what media frenzy? Yeah, what media frenzy? Kind of what you the first time that you bring him to your town, yes, the media is going to want to ask him questions face-to-face. Yes. No question. That day will be a, a, a media frenzy. But after that, what happens? After that, what happens? Yeah. What happens? The guy then goes to mini camps. How many times are our fifth-round draft choices made available for comment at minicamps do you hear about? Yeah, it's true. None. How many fifth-round or fourth-round or third-round draft choices are made available at training camp? None. Now, there's not many that are asked to speak, but you can control that. These are your players. It's your team. We're, in, we're behind the, the cordons in the media. We've got a press pass. That's it. Yeah. Now, if he wants to reach out and talk to members of the media... That's his, that's his right. That's his right. And, and I believe that he knows that what people are expecting, the whole specter of the media, he's not going to play into it. It seems like he's got some, he's got a, he has got a heavy-hitting, long-time, savvy PR agent. Well, he did all this last year with every single guy in the locker room knowing, and it didn't seem to affect his play. The other thing is that, that for years in the NFL, there's been gay players that their teammates just didn't know. Look at Jerry Smith. We just did a football life on him. When he stopped playing, he had every tight end record in the books. Now, I know I know that, again, right. That was an interesting – and they were rerunning that football life Wednesday, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's a great story. And you watch it. it is. But one thing I've also heard, I've, I've found in the 10-plus years that I've been in, in this world, mm. NFL players, locker rooms, executives, it's like a, that's all they do is talk. These rumors, innuendo, everybody knows everybody's business. Yeah. Everybody does. Everybody does. Somebody might not raise their hand and tell Chris Connolly or John Branch of ESPN and the New York Times, by the way, I'm gay. <laughs> I think everybody, everybody knows. Yeah. And there may be some people that are in the closet in that respect, and that's their prerogative. And it is your prerogative, I guess, as a player to have an issue with that. Sure. But do I think it's going to create a fissure in a locker room in 2014? No way. And I don't know what what is this man's man sport business? What does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? Because he he's he he's 
sexually into other men, that means he's not a man? I'll tell you what. what is the, I don't know what that means. What, is, what does that mean? Is you, it means what you are is you don't know anything. I when you wa- say that about the NFL, this, this kid had 11 and a half sacks in the SEC last year. He's 260 pounds. He's not a man? Are you kidding me? I read that. I slapped my forehead. I'm like, oh, God. Because the rest of the media, I was on CNN. Because this is the sort of stuff that jumps from the sports page to the news page. When the first lady of the United States and vice president of the United States is sending out tweets about it, it jumps from the sport from the back sports page to the front of the page. That's going to be the, the tough newspaper. thing. Is, is there is so much additional outside sports media that's now going to want a piece that at some point... Well, like I said, he has got his own crew. Yeah. And I, from what it seems like to me. Now, if he appears every single week somewhere or every day this week i bet you you won't hear from him until the combine and and i'm sure we at the network are going to try and and get his time to talk to him and mayock and i are going to talk to him or somebody's going to talk to him and there are going to be people that are going to try and get his time he will be made available at the combine yes and there'll be that media frenzy and we'll wonder oh gosh this media frenzy how's a team going to be able to handle that come on I, ha- I was hanging with Pat Hanlon of the New York Football Giants, the senior vice president of, of media, of communications, of the New York Football Giants, whose co-owners sent out a press release giving a, an attaboy to Michael Sam on Monday. Both of them decided to send out a press release in support of Michael Sam. Good. You mean to tell me Pat Hanlon, in the number one media market of the United States of America... He's not going to be able to handle what's going to come down on the New York Giants because they drafted a gay player across the Hudson from the West Village? <laughs> That's a problem? Rich just stood up, by the way. I don't know, man. I, I, get, I just get... And again, that's why people who are on the other side of this issue are very... They're very emotional about it, too. Sure. And again, for those of you who are hearing this and you're, you might be screaming it, you might have turned me off 10 minutes ago. I have no idea. I apologize for that. The question is, will it be a distraction? Will it be an issue in the locker room? I can't believe grown men who are paid executives or scouts for National Football League team, their first blush response is can't work here. When it worked on a college campus, for crying out loud. Yep. And the only other issue between that and this is that you've got grown men who are paid to do it, although some people might say SEC is a <laughs> semi-professional league anyway, but you've got grown men who are paid to do it, and the secret is out. And now it's handling the coverage of it. I think, you've I think got to be kidding me, man. I, I, I was so disappointed when I read all of that. Yeah. But here's the thing. If this young man, Michael Sam, can't play football, then we shouldn't talk about him. Yeah, and- That's it. That's it. I want to know from here on out, can he play football? Because if he can, draft him. And, but draft him in the right spot. Yeah. Draft him where you see value from him. Draft him where you think somebody of his talents can fit into your program. Charlie Cashley made some good points. You know, he was, he was actually a GM on the Redskins when Jerry Smith was there, and he knew about that. But he said he also wouldn't have his head in the sand as a GM. He would talk to the team captains and say – this kid has value, or, and he would want to make sure they're in support because your locker room 
no matter what, if you invite him in, which any team should, that locker room has to support it. And that's what no that's also what we need to see as leaders no in the NFL currently Like now. I told you, one player who I've spoken to essentially was, I would have no problem with this. Yeah. All I care about it. I show to work. I want to win. Can that guy help me win? But why did he come out and, and make a big deal of it? Yeah. And when, when he finally heard, well, it was going to come out, people were poking around at the, at the edges of this story at the Senior Bowl, Yep. And eventually it was going to come out, and he wanted to make sure that it came from his mouth, not the mouth of somebody who was writing about it on some website that he had never heard of before, yeah. that the rest of the national media then hopped on. He wanted to control it. Once I told this to the player, he's like, oh, okay, cool. So he's going to have to – Michael Sam is going to have to, when he goes into a locker room, express that to his new teammates. And I think once he does that, everything's going to be cool. Because, like I said, it doesn't matter if you're homosexual, if you've got uh, something uh, you want to proselytize about religion, if you want to do something along the lines of anything outside of winning and make that your number one reason for playing football and your agenda within the locker room, I think you're going to have a problem on your hands. It doesn't matter. It's like a Mad Lib. Fill in the blank. In terms of making this work, and this this kind of sounds questionable from the, the sense of making it work, but you, this is the kind of guy you needed it to be. You needed it to be a badass defensive lineman who is going to, who can play. Because if he was a fringe player, if this guy was maybe maybe a seventh round or not draftable he guy. He might be. Yeah, but again, the, the whole fact that he's the 2013 SEC Defensive Player of the Year makes me think he's going to well, get You're also a shot hearing on of his 11 and a half sacks. A bunch of them came in against opponents that were not of SEC top-notch mm-hmm. quality. That these are the things that that might be an issue. For the most part, players in the NFL have, have reacted positively to this. There are some outliers, but our guest that's going to be coming in the door in a few minutes, who I'm not going to ask this question to, especially since he's already tweeted something out. Yeah, he's Malcolm Smith is one of those players who, who, who tweeted out, there is no room for bigotry in American sports. It takes courage to change the culture. That's what he said. Retweeted 1,500 times, favorited 1,900 times. D'Angelo Williams, I could care less about a man's sexual preference. I care about winning games and being respectful in the locker room. Retweeted 2,100 times, favorited over 3,000 times. So there is not only generally positive support from the player base, but also from the fan base on Twitter that's retweeting this and favoriting all of this. So I want to close on this topic with something positive that moves forward here. Because, again, I even heard heard a couple of former general managers go on various media outlets saying that they're wondering if maybe Michael Sam needs to room by himself in training camp. Okay? It's just, first of all, He's not the first gay man in the NFL. So it's happened. It's happened. We we just maybe we just don't know who who the the gay football players are. So to to say he needs to room by himself. And number two, if you think if you're a player and you don't want to room with Michael Sam, guess what? He may not be into you, <laughs> or he may not want to room with you either. You know, he yeah. may not, you may not be his type. It's so absurd. It's like it's some people in in our business, in the NFL, 
who have been anonymously quoted and some people in, in our media industry, it's like they've never met a gay person before. Yeah. It's, so let me just close on this because I've, I've, I think I've said enough. Yeah. And again, fans have had enough. I think most fans are like, so what? Let's get to a point where this doesn't matter anymore. And the media talking about it, in, it, it, it might perpetuate the myth that there's a media problem with drafting Michael Sam. So I'm not going to talk about this topic much unless, you know, we get Michael Sam on the set at the Combine and moving forward about his draft status. So let me leave something positive here. In this world that we live in, on the calendar year in the NFL, talking about high-character guys, guys who you want on your team, guys who will not be problems in the headlines, or the police blotter, you're looking for those guys on your team. Michael Sam is a guy who has had the courage to do what he did. And not now. I'm not talking about just now, which is courageous enough in the regard of our current societal viewpoint towards people who are homosexual and in the sports world. What he did in Missouri at that team building function where he wrote on a piece of paper for his teammates who were putting into the kitty on their pieces of paper something that their teammates didn't know about them for him to write I'm gay is beyond what people would call brave or courageous totally and by the way, using the word brave or courageous, I, I don't want tweets or people saying, well, brave, courageous is people who fight wars. Clearly, we understand that. It's, it's a different use of the word. What he did was remarkable. The team building that happened in Missouri to go 12-2 and two and fifth overall in the country, and what he did as a player, and showed, he showed that being gay defines him as a human being. But it's not what defines him as a football player. He showed that at Missouri. That has already been proven that this is the way that he goes about his business. I wouldn't even say, it probably doesn't even define him as a human being. It's just a fraction of who he is as a human being. Well, but it defines him as, as, as who he is. Yeah, no, very true. No, you're right. Why wouldn't you want that guy on your team? Somebody who is going to face... These issues, in this manner, why wouldn't you want that guy in your figurative foxhole on Sundays or Thursdays or Mondays? Why wouldn't you want to draft him? Bill Bill Belichick came out, or Robert Kraft came out, um, Mike McCarthy came out and said, if he can play, he's a good teammate. If he can play. And that is what we're going to be focusing on on this podcast moving forward. Yeah. But I have said my piece on Michael Sam. Before we throw open the doors <laughs> for Malcolm Smith, there is the issue of what has gone down in Cleveland. By the way, Bruce Dern is on the other side, and we have a surprise again in store for him with a, uh, a, a longtime member of the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah. He's a Rams fan, we are told. We can Bruce say Dern Hall is. of Famer because there's a few of them from that. I think we should stop giving it away there. Okay, we'll just stop there. Okay. But the Cleveland Browns, that after one and dunning their coach on the final Sunday of the season, then having a January filled of press conferences with wondering what direction this team is in, 
Joe Banner and our friend Michael Lombardi and Jimmy Haslam, the owner, being called the Three Stooges locally in Cleveland, going through a coaching search that they swore everyone was on the same page, that they were had a plan, and it seemed like they knocked on virtually every door in the National Football League before settling for Mike Pettin, who I believe, as we have discussed with Brian Billick on our previous show, is not someone who is a settler, yeah, right? He's not the type of coach that you settle for. I think he's a very good coach that Cleveland fans, once they win, or if they win, <laughs> will love. After all of that, they go and hire Mike Pettin and on Tuesday fire Michael Lombardi and say that Joe Banner is going to transition his way out. And Ray Farmer is now elevated to the role of general manager from within. So they, if I'm not mistaken... Jimmy Haslam bought the team, fired everybody, Holmgren on down, Shermer, everybody's out, hired Banner and Lombardi, put that process and group in place, went ahead, tried to get Chip Kelly, didn't get him, hired Chudzinski, played one year, fired the coach, hired a new coach, and then fired the guys who hired the coach. And now they're moving onward. I didn't miss anything, did I? Well, there was an investigation. Well, let's not get it. That is what it is. uh, Okay. So all of that has gone down, and so it it looks horrible, right? Dysfunctional, all of that. That said, from what I am told, it has actually cleaned up the flowchart in Cleveland, that the flowchart in Cleveland needed cleaning up. And that... Sources? Well... We could go sources. I like it. No. That the flow chart needed cleaning up. Now, this people who are in place right now may not be the right people. I think I like Petten, and everybody speaks so highly of Ray Farmer. Yeah. That with the talent base that they have, the two draft picks that Ray Farmer has inherited in the first round of this year's draft, that the Browns aren't, if you could look through the forest and the trees together, the Browns aren't too far away. And that Haslam may have finally stumbled upon or arrived upon, however you care to look at it, the right flow chart where there's a general manager, there's not a a GM and a CEO. There's a general manager who controls the 53 and a coach who controls who plays out of that 53 on Sunday. And I have been told that is not what was the case before. For Chudzinski last year. Six pro bowlers on that team. So, I mean, when Holmgren's left some people there too now. Yeah. I mean, he used that 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 that, that pick on uh, Josh Gordon in the supplemental draft, and Gordon's turned into a beast. Their best player. But I tweeted out, a, you know, I'd love to be a fly on Mike Holmgren's wall today, and I got an, uh, uh, an avalanche <laughs> of tweets from Cleveland fans saying, I don't want to, I don't need to hear what he had to say. With first-round choices on Whedon and and Trent Richardson. But the Trent Richardson pick has begot two more first-round draft choices in a singular draft. And Ray Farmer may be the guy to to move this thing forward. But Browns fans... I know... Maybe it? Maybe it's Johnny Football. He may not be available for the Browns at that point. That's true. They might have to package to get up to get him. And that's what we'll be talking about over the next several months. So let's get things going because I... 
I know this is going to be a, a, a lengthy show. This will be a long one. Because Bru- you said Br- Bruce Stern is a storyteller. You've Bruce Stern likes to tell stories from, from what we've heard, and uh, but they're good, so we're looking forward I can't to that. Wait. I can't wait. Bruce Dern, Academy Award nominee, uh, a man who's been in the, the movie-making business for over a half century, will be in here. But first, let's throw open the doors for somebody who had a pretty good Sunday a couple weeks ago. Here he is in the flesh on the Rich Eisen podcast, the MVP of Super Bowl Forty Eight, Malcolm Smith, the champion Seattle Seahawks. Good to see you. How are you? I'm good. Anything happened in the last eight days of your oh, life? Anything nothing, big? Man. Anything That's... I should know about? Anything going on in your life? Uh, nothing big. No. Just the Hang same out. old Malcolm yeah, Smith? Same old, same old stuff. Same old guy. Nah, it's things have kind of been crazy. Yeah, I, I just remember it was just, again, eight days ago. Yeah. You came on our set, me and Dion and Marshall and Irvin. And you just—it looked in a way like you didn't know where you were. Like you <laughs> knew sort of where you were, yeah. But it just seemed like you, you were in shock Absolutely. as to what was going down in your life after that game. Um, I was stunned, you know, especially being on that stage with you guys. I was like, "Wow, this is Marshall Falk." <laughs> That's, That's cool, Dion. Uh, so. Yeah, I got over that eight years yeah, ago. You know, it happened to no me a couple deal. times. Yeah, now. <laughs> What's up, guys? No. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, that's exactly how I felt. I was in shock and awe. Just so happy we won, obviously. Sure. Initially, that was my first deal. And then the whole MVP thing, it was like a whole another emotion I wasn't really ready for. Before getting into the game, I want to get into your story first because it's an incredible story uh, that some folks probably have heard a little bit about because of your game that you had and the fact that you went to Disney World and – uh, but for those who may not have had the benefit of finding out who you are and where you've come from, I'd love to get into that a little bit. First things first, you're, you're, you're Steve Smith's brother, right? Yes. The, the Super Bowl giant uh, winning Steve Smith yeah. from USC. Yeah, there's always confusion. They're like, oh, your brother plays for the Panthers? I'm like, no, he's not. No, I don't know him. You get that sometimes? Yeah. That's happens. Steve Smith? Yeah, I'm sure it's, for him it's probably 20 times <laughs> worse. <laughs> right. How many How many uh, siblings do you have? Uh, I have two younger sisters, and then it's me and my older brother. And you and your older brother. Yeah. So you're you're the second of yeah. four. Yes. Okay. Um, at what point did you know you wanted to play football? Oh, young, man. I started playing when I was six. So I was just a big Barry Sanders fan as a kid. I always wanted to play running back. Um, what happened? I got, I, I don't know. I, I, I still think I could do it. You do? <laughs> yeah. You could go beast mode? On us? I, I've I've told Beast Mode that I could go Beast Mode. And what did Beast Mode say? He didn't believe me, but <laughs> okay, I definitely feel like I I could have because you're all about that action, boss. Boss. Okay. Yeah. So you're all about the action. Yeah. So you 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 were wanted to play running back, and mm-hmm. at some point you just found yourself on the defensive side of the football. Yeah. Well, point? I mean, as a kid, you play both sides. And sure. Right. Everybody loves scoring touchdowns. Even to this day, I still love scoring touchdowns. So. But you had a good one in the yeah, Super Bowl. Was that was a good right. one. Yeah. That was all right. It was sort of crucial. <laughs> sort of worked out. Um, so, I guess a college, uh, just getting recruited, they were kind of like, you could play either side of the ball, but I remember my high school coach telling me, you probably have a better future on the defensive side of the ball, and well, you have fun. And that has, and so did Pete Carroll recruit you? Did he Did he walk into your living room? He didn't come to my living room. He had been there before. but Obviously, brother, but, with your brother. Is that um, where you first met Pete Carroll, was um, when he came to for, for Steve? Yeah, yeah. I remember him coming and sitting at the dining room table with um, Coach Sarkeesian and then recruiting Steve and Lane Kiffin at the time and kind of just spilling the beans and telling them all about USC. And so is that how did you get to USC? Was that just because your brother went there and you were comfortable with it? And- no, I, I actually was kind of 
interested in a lot of a lot of other places. Uh, Notre Dame, um, Cal. Those those are my other two choices, and I just kind of said that USC fit me well, and I don't want to leave home, and it's hard to leave LA. It's right, yeah. I, I'm with you. Yeah. Now that I'm out here, I love living out here. <laughs> yeah. So that's how you got to USC. At where, at what point did you realize you weren't yourself physically? At what point did you feel like there was something wrong with you health wise? Uh, I remember we were in our the Rose Bowl in 2008 or nine, and um, we're sitting with like the Rose Queens and stuff, and and we're eating steak at Lowry's down here down the street, and I'm like I can't swallow like these guys are crushing these pieces of uh, was it whatever the prime rib, okay. and I'm like I can barely swallow one, and it kind of just got progressively worse over time. I was couldn't swallow water for a little bit. I started losing weight, and I was like okay, um, I think something's wrong with me. Check it out, guys. How old were you? You were 21 at that point? No, I think I was 19. 19 years old. Yeah, 19. And you're beginning to feel like you have problems keeping food down or just just swallowing? Swallowing and and keeping it down. It wasn't going down. So it was like it's a a stuck. It feels like it's stuck. It's kind of painful. Um, It's scary at first. You think, like, am I choking and stuff like that. So um, just dealing with that. It was a little alarming at first. Well, yeah, initially before I got diagnosed, I was really worried. And what were you diagnosed with? Achalasia. And that is what? It's a um, a disease that affects the esophagus. Uh, mine is in the third sphincter, I think. Um, so basically your esophagus is a muscle that pushes the food down mm-hmm. into your stomach. Uh, achalasia is when your esophagus doesn't work anymore. And it, uh, how, how many people does this affect? Not many, right? No, I've heard maybe one in a hundred thousand, but I don't think it's that many. I think it might be a little more rare than that. No kidding. Yeah. So what happened? Um, this is your this sophomore is, year. This is your junior year of, of at USC. I feel it's my sophomore year, mm-hmm. and we just won the Rose Bowl. Um, we're going Suddenly, to, you can't we're going put to, food down. Yeah, I I can't eat. I I was at two like almost two forty at one point, and I'm down to like. 205 my gosh and um i just started to panic a little bit you know just go gear young i'm young so i don't really know i'm thinking okay maybe it's something they'll fix easy like oh yeah it's just heartburn it'll be okay i start taking pepsid ac and stuff like that and then there's it wasn't helping uh fortunately at usc they have some some great doctors for achalasia some guys that are kind of um pioneers for the surgery at usc at usc no kidding which is like it was amazing for me to find that out at the time i was like oh, okay cool so i, I right think i had spot. a pretty good yeah surgery um they took good care of me it's, it's still a process it's still something i, I work with so you had surgery yeah. at age 19 yeah and how quickly were you able to get back on the football field uh i was back ready for for fall camp and um we're going into my junior year which is like i'm okay, this is my chance to really start. Like, I had been competing before, but now I've kind of set, set myself apart, ready to start. And uh, I still have, like, kind of some pains in my chest, and um, my surgery surgical spots are a little tight, a little uh, tender. And I remember getting ready to run down on the first kickoff of that year, San Jose State, and I screamed. I was like, yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting a chest pain. So... um I'm running down on kickoff. Like, am I going to make it through this game? Mm-hmm. Um, it ended up being, I guess it's like a part of the whole deal, spasms and stuff like that. Uh, it's just something I have to deal with. 
You still deal with this? I still deal with this. Like How it, do you deal like, with this? Uh, um, cold water, just sitting up and kind of just trying to relax. And so th- you, you have the surgery. Mm-hmm. You're back from the surgery. Right. You're back on the field. Mm-hmm. And this is your junior year. You're a 20-year-old going into your junior year at, at USC. Ready to start at USC. And you are, how old are you now? 24. 24. Yeah. <laughs> and four years later, you're still dealing with this. Yeah. And you're the Super Bowl MVP. Yeah. Of of the Seattle Seahawks championship team, that's incredible journey. Have you at any point in the last eight days stopped and thought about that, Malcolm? I don't think so. I'm, I haven't really assessed it. You know, I've always kind of just been okay. What can we do to move forward? What can we do? What can I do to try to like maximize my next opportunity or whatever it is? But if when I do stop and think about it, like lately I've kind of and you're it's it's inspirational for other people who might be in my situation. Um, it's something that might help somebody that might be a little down and out and thinking that, oh, I'm suffering from this. I don't know what my future is going to be. I don't know what things may be like. Because I remember looking for other people that might have been suffering from the same thing. And have you found many people who have been suffering from this? I mean, thing? now that it's come out, there's all yeah. kind of people, but no one, no one in athletics that I've met, heard of, seen. Is this why you were drafted in the seventh round, you think? I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. But, I mean, it could definitely play a part into it. That's. I mean, how much huge. was this brought up at your medical at the combine? I didn't go to the combine. You didn't go to the combine. Right. There. You, well, I mean, there's no – I mean, please. That's – you'd have been invited to the combine if you didn't have this sort of thing, most likely. Yeah. Well – So what where, What happened? As everyone's going to the combine, you're not going. What was? Your, where was your head at that point in time? In the gutter. No, in the dumps. I was so – down and out for a while and um just thinking about trying to prepare for that combine and waiting for that invite and uh it never coming and me calling the combine itself like the googling the number for nfl combine and getting on the phone with somebody and then telling me no you're not you're not coming is is tough so did you send dvds and stuff like that i know because i i sometimes get dvds from from people who aren't invited to the combine. And if I'm getting them, I'm sure that you, you I don't know, what, what did you do? Did you put a campaign together or something put, like that? We put, the, uh, my agent helped me put together um, a little video, kind of just some highlights and stuff like that. But obviously people watch the film. Um, I think I put out some decent film. You got a pro day though, right? I did have a pro day. At USC? Pro day was good. Um, I think I did well. We had a lot of guys out there. And was, so there was a lot of people there. There was a lot of attention, but, um, so at what point? So now it's 2011, right? Mm-hmm. You're through. You did your pro day. Right. What happened draft weekend? What was that like? It was long, man. <laughs> I had to have been. So uh, I'm already consi- I'm, I didn't go to the combine. The chances of me being drafted the first two days are very slim. So I'm just waiting for the third day, um, just praying to get drafted. You get phone calls from your agent telling you there's people interested in you, and you get calls in the third and fourth round people calling you just to i don't know what just to say hey we're interested in you or we might take you with one of these picks so i'd go and to the driving range like just whacking balls better than i've ever that was the best i've ever been that day how far can you hit it um how far not many linebackers have a golf game by the way i'm a little stiff in the shoulders (laughs) i'm not not even throwing a number out there okay that was three bills can you go three bills can you get i think i went three bills that day i remember yeah okay um yeah, just sitting at home waiting and watching the ticker go by and names go by. Get to the point where they're not even really announcing the names anymore. The things just doom, 
okay, this guy got drafted. In, in yeah, we don't. We don't. Yeah. yeah, right around the fourth or fifth round, we we just talk football for yeah. the whole day. We yeah. don't stop the draft <laughs> to announce anybody. I I doubt that we stopped when 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 you finally got drafted in the the seventh round. What pick overall were 242nd. you? Two hundred and forty second. Two forty two. So you were close to being Mister Irrelevant. Yeah, eleven picks or twelve picks from Mister Irrelevant. So who did you get your your phone rang finally? Is that what happened? Yeah. Well, actually, my agent had called. He was on the phone with me around. Okay, my my roommate got drafted the pick before me, so I was on the phone with my agent. Who's your roommate? Stanley Havili is a fullback. Sure. Um, so we're on the phone. He's like, Seattle's not going to take you, man. There. This is this is a bunch of crap. Blah blah blah. He's upset. I'm upset. And I'm like, whatever. We'll just move on to the whatever's next and. I get a phone call in with my cell phone in the other hand or, or in the house phone and it's um John Schneider. He's like, Malcolm, we're gonna take you with this pick. Are you excited? And I was like, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, You don't sound excited. I'm like, what do you think? It's it's been a long day, but at the same time I was relieved. Um I had a destination. There was a lockout, so guys that, that oh, right. were undrafted Nothing. They, yeah, Zero. They, yeah. They didn't get to find out where they were going for, for wow. almost a month. So it was just one of those things, man. You feel like things are just stacking up, and you're just getting lower and lower and lower. But uh, <laughs> now try you're the to stay Super Bowl MVP, right, Malcolm. Right, right. Again, no. Listen, I know you're a young man. You're 24, <laughs> and you've got everything ahead of you, and you want to take it, looking forward to the next opportunity. But this is ridiculous. I mean, I don't know of too many stories of Super Bowl MVPs that sound like this. Yeah, it's unbelievable, man. What you have done. If I had told you. That day after you hung up the phone from John Schneider. <laughs> Just wait three years, man. Just wait three years. Not even three years. Not even three full calendar years. You're going to be the MVP of the Super Bowl. I would have broke down crying. That's unbelievable for you to say that. And thinking back to how I was feeling those days, that moment, it's unbelievable for everything to come around like this. You go fourth round, you're on a, a, a different team. Right. None of this happens. Entirely possible, right? right? I mean, t the journey... Happens for a reason. Yeah. Do you believe that? It's clear to me. No, if I, I know if you've I, had surgery. And yeah. you've had, I mean, you've been through. Yeah. You've been through some stuff. If, but. if 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 I didn't think that before, it's definitely pretty clear now that that's how things go. So, I'm just blessed, man, and and, and the the support I've had around me to kind of stick to what my dream was and um, stay proactive, and you know. It's it's been awesome. Now then, let's get to uh, Crabtree being mediocre. <laughs> yeah. Let's get right into that now. Um, you did catch the Richard Sherman tip pass right. that landed in your hands. Yeah. What was that like for you? It's just kind of like a regular football moment for us at practice. But when you think about it, this is the NFC Championship. Um, I, you see Kaepernick looking at Crabtree. I'm just running over there just in case something like that happens. And it does. Ball comes off Sherman's fingers, and it's we're going to the Super Bowl. Crazy. And what what was it like from your perspective? The whole thing that we spent the next five days in the media <laughs> talking about Richard Sherman. Clearly, you didn't see it until well after, and I'm sure media members were even asking you about it right after the game. But your perspective on on all of that was what? Um, I mean, obviously, he has a, a personal relationship with Mr. Crabtree that you think? I don't understand. Um <laughs> something that got him a little fired up. So he yeah. he had he he had the opportunity to say what he wanted to say and mm -hmm. he got his point across and I'm looking forward to 
seeing the matchups in the future. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking it might. You know, I don't. I don't think the NFL is going to serve the filet mignon right off the bat for your home opener <laughs> on the first Thursday night. But it'll happen. It's going to happen. I know. I, I I just don't see San Francisco going to your house right off the bat just like that. I think the, the league's going to want it to build a little bit. But a lot of us in the media were saying that what he did took away from players just like you. That you had a great great play. Beast mode ran for 100 yards. Baldwin did this and that. And I've met Richard Sherman. I I love the guy. And mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be the paparazzi stirring it up. I just This is the first time I've had a right. chance to speak to you about it. Was there any issue at any point at any time? No, there was no issue with us. I think um, that was absolutely not his intention to take away from his teammates. I know him, and I know he would never do that. Um, I didn't really take it personally either because – here I am. I'm just the seventh-round pick guy, happy to be on the field. Oh, I caught the ball. Cool. I'll take it home um, type deal. So I wasn't really looking for any more attention. Uh, as for Marshawn, his play speaks for itself all it's, the time. Well, it's the only thing that speaks for itself. <laughs> it speaks for everything yeah. about him and us. So right. um, he probably wouldn't have had anything to say either. So I think Sherm did a great job of kind of having that moment and – the after effects of kind of taking control of the message he was trying to send and how he felt about our team. How good is Earl Thomas? How good is he? Unbelievable. Fastest person I've seen on the football field. Just the the most competitive guy. The driving force to our defense, it works from top down from him. So he, because it, it looks to me that he is the, the leader. He is the guy. He's, he's, that, it all, that he's the he's the heartbeat. He's everything. Definitely. That's what it looks like for me from the outside. That's the way it is? Absolutely. He's He's the, he's just, the the perfect football player you'd imagine you know the way he attacks the game the way he prepares we've all had to elevate ourselves you know so we could be good teammates to him and match the output that he has the person who i have heard that about in the past is ray lewis now i don't want to make any comparisons but i've just heard those are the la- that's the things that i've always heard about ray you don't want to disappoint ray right you've got to raise your game because if you don't you'll hear about it from ray that you want always to impress ray yeah. Is that the way yeah. it is? Well, he doesn't necessarily put that kind of pressure on you, but you want to because he's a good teammate. And the way he prepares and the effort and how much he cares about it, you feel like you need to. That That's the only way to do it because if you did anything else, you'd be shortchanging yourself and your team. I said on the previous show that the three on his back stands for the number of Earl Thomases it looks like who's out there. <laughs> I mean, it's it really is. He's everywhere. He's he really is really he's all a over special the place. player. If you don't if you don't get the perspective of being at the game or seeing the game film, mm-hmm. you might not. I don't know. I don't really watch too many TV games, but I'm sure he's around the ball all the time. It's remar- It's ridiculous. Yeah. The yeah. Super Bowl in particular. Yeah, he's all over and, the place. And and it just, you know, it, it was just an incredible performance. Now Richard Sherman said you guys figured out Peyton Manning's hand signals. Did he really? That's what he did. You you haven't heard that. He didn't, he, send, he didn't send me that message. He, I didn't get that message. You didn't get that message? <laughs> he might have figured it out and was telling us on another time. But, no, I don't – we really weren't too concerned with the Peyton Manning signals and him and his checking. didn't seem you were concerned about too much at all. Yeah. It seemed like it was a wrap once you got – once Joe Namath prematurely flipped the coin in yeah. that – in that in fur coat. Yeah. Um, were you guys talking about that fur coat? The fur, oh, yeah. He, I said he came out in the fur. That was the exact same fur that he had had in some pictures I saw the other day. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, Broadway Joe. It was him, yeah. right. And so um, what was it about your preparation that showed up on the field in Super Bowl Forty Eight that made it what it seemed like a mismatch, a mismatch? Uh, K.J. Wright, I believe, said 
who who went down for an injury and, and opened the door for for your ascendant at ascension in a way correct yeah he said 90 out of 100 you'd have won that game <laughs> some brash talkers yeah but what what was it about the preparation that made it look so one-sided we do you felt think? like when we watched the film that we did have a mismatch we felt like we were at an advantage and we didn't have to change anything why just the the way we play our style you see the way earl plays we we're all trying to play like that you see the way cam hits you see where how guys rush the passer, you see how Sherm covers, you see how Bobby Wagner is sideline to sideline, up the field, down the field. No, be that as it may, though, that's the Denver Broncos and Peyton Manning and Demarius Thomas and the rest of the crew on the other side of the ball. We saw them in the preseason. We've seen them in the preseason for the past couple years. Um, There was no fear or worry or adjustment. We, We watched the film. We prepared for the concepts that we had seen, and we felt like they have to execute at a really high level and do things that we're not going to allow them to do. And then um, comes the moment right? where uh, Peyton Manning is hit as he throws, ball floating in the air. From your perspective, what did it look like, that football, as it was in the air? I was just saying to myself, no, not again. The ball is just tipping the air. Um, I was breaking on. What do you mean, no, not again? What do you mean? I mean, well, that's like four picks in five games for me, all off like tips and stuff like that. So uh, I was like, wow. This is unbelievable. So, no Sean's like standing there, and I'm, I just ran and jumped and caught it. And we had such great pressure from Cliff. He just bullied his guy right back to the quarterback. Great coverage on the back end for him to have to check it down. Um, and that's the type. That's the type of plays we expect to make with our effort around the whole defense. It'll be somebody like me, you know, eating off the fruits of Cliff Averill's labor. Nice. Yeah. And then, if I'm not mistaken. You score, yeah, oh. and then you you go up for the dunk, right? Yeah, that <laughs> and was then, and that then, was not regulation. That was, what the what the I the uprights the were not regulation. Right, the Super Bowl uh, goalposts, I think, are a little bit higher. Okay, yeah. Now again, I'm 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 hesitant to say this against somebody again who is describing that you have a medical condition. I understand, <laughs> and you clearly have done everything you can to overcome it, but <laughs> at the end of the play, right. you went up mm-hmm. and. Tried to dunk it over the goalpost and it didn't quite. That was an aggressive make it. layup. That was not a dunk. That was a, that was a finger roll. Layup. Finger roll that. Yeah. It was a teardrop. Yeah. It was the old L- LT teardrop. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's great. Hey, it was a long drive, man. Oh, and listen, no, it was because it, you think about the second quarter. That was a stat that we mentioned last week too. I think Denver's time of possession in the second quarter was ten and a half minutes, yeah. and you outscored them fourteen to nothing in that quarter to essentially make it a wrap, twenty-two nothing. At that point in time, that, that's a wrap. Bruno Mars goes on the air uh, mm. on on stage, and that's an absurdly long halftime. I mean, it's like two yeah. half times, three yeah. half times on top of one another, right? Yeah. Then you come out for the second half, watching Percy Harvin do that. Uh, please walk me through what that was like on the sideline for all of you. Um, so I guess the ball bounced. It was a short kick. They didn't want to kick it to Percy. Ball bounces, and anytime. The ball bounces, you know, there's going to be time for the, the kickoff team to get closer, which means that personally has to make one guy miss. The ball bounces, they create some space, he makes one guy miss, and as soon as he takes about three steps, if he's going full speed, it's it's a wrap. He's so fast. And then it was that the 29 nothing. That was kind of the moment where I was like, okay, well, let's get ready for the celebration. This is going to happen. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, yeah. and, then, and then Demarius Thomas has a ball knocked out, of his arms, deep, deep in territory, deep also. in the territory, yeah. and who, who's right there to pick up the football? Oh, man, 
That would be you. That's just great plays by by Byron Maxwell right there. No, you just run talk, into the ball. Just you, run into the ball. I know. I mean, you could talk about your teammates all you yeah. want. It just seems to me again, Malcolm. I, I'm I'm a I'm a believer in in meant to be. Okay, I'm a, I'm a believer in that sort of stuff. Just again, finding out what I wish I had known fully your story mm-hmm. when you came on the set. I was unfamiliar with the full depth of your story, right. but it really has has blown me away since since your Super Bowl win. Since you did visit our set afterwards, all that you've been through, all that you've been through, and the dumps that you were in on draft day and the combine not inviting you, calling them up, that the ball bounces your way a few times through hard work, dedication, study, film. You're in the right spot, no question. But do you feel that you're you're getting back what you've put in? A little bit so. sometimes? Absolutely. It definitely shows that the work is, is paying off. And fate is in action for sure. Um, for us to make those plays, for me to be able to be on the field to make those plays along with my teammates, is for me is so gratifying to come from one point to another. A few more questions for you. You gave the truck to your mom? Yes. Is that your story? Yeah. Well, I haven't got the truck yet, but when I the truck, we're gonna. What is the truck? The Chevy what? Chevy Silverado High uh, Country. High Country. Yeah. Well, that's the way you ride. Yeah. Or your mom's gonna ride. Yeah, she's gonna be riding around okay. L.A. High Country. So when we're, we're <laughs> is it red? What do we have? What is it? Um, color? she wants you know? like a a metallic, uh, gunmetal black. She wants. Are, so wait, so are you are you, are you allowed to <laughs> choose your exterior yeah. and interior? Yes. I would hope so. If you're the Super Bowl MVP, right? It's not like whatever's Stock. on the lot yeah. at the at the Santa Clarita <laughs> Chevy, whatever it is that that they give you. So you're 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 gonna your mom has gone online and chosen interiors yeah, and exteriors. Yeah, we, we were looking at options the day after, oh. so. <laughs> <laughs> We Isn't came back great? and I was like, "You want to check it out, Mom?" She's like, "Oh yeah, sure." Just kind of keeping it cool, like, "Oh, well, you know, if you want the truck, it's yours." Like, "No, you can have the truck, Mom. What do you What do you want to put on it?" We had some discussion. At first, she was like, "Well, I think I want red or blue." I'm like, "Nah, let's just. What about a darker color?" And mm-hmm. then she's like, "Ooh, I only do black if we put the black rims, and then I'll black out the logos." And nice. Yeah, she wants to put some horns and stuff. She wants that matte, that matte black. Right? Yeah, yeah, she's gonna good she, for you. It's it's gonna be funny. Do you go to Disneyland or World? I went to Disney World. You went to Disney yeah. World. Have you ever been there? No, that was my first time. It was, it's a magical place. That place is huge. It is huge. There's many, many different lands yeah. there. Yeah. I couldn't even, I mean, I only saw one park, but. It has its own fire department, yeah. by the way. It's yeah, freeways running through the whole place and everything. I so. know. I'll Can I ask you a question about that? So do you, does your agent come up to you before that? Does the NFL PA, do you guys sign something? And how, how, did, how do you know? Why are you getting, this is, wait a minute, hold a minute. I'm getting into the touching story. I'm trying to pull the heart <laughs> I want to know. And you're, and you're talking about filling out paperwork and triplicate. What, what if he you, wants to say I want to go to Six Flags or something? I want to know. He can't. I didn't really have that. Well, they actually no. come up to you before. I don't even know if I'm supposed to say this, but they come up to you before and they. they, they there's no negotiation. Yeah, they catch there's you early. They caught us at media day. And oh, they, so way before the game. Though. They're yeah, they're like, well, you. I could have told you this answer. Well, I want to hear from the- only the Dion's of the world have wiggle room. Okay, <laughs> Dion, ask Dion the story about when he was asked if if he wins the MVP, whether he can go to Disney World, <laughs> and how much money was on the table, and Ooh. how much money he was going to require to be Ooh. on the table. There's not much for for yeah, for um, hey. most players. There's not much wiggle room. No, I'm sure for Peyton Manning there might have been wiggle room. Got it. I don't know if he if if he. Extracted it Dion like? Yeah. Well, Eli said it, so you know, I'm you know, I don't know. Said it before, I don't know. So. Eli doesn't sell pizzas. It's true. You know what I mean? Peyton's in a different tax bracket. Yeah, definitely. Well, maybe not too far away. So, are you guys talking about 
repeat at all yet? Has that has that word been mentioned amongst you and your colleagues? Yeah, our, our last uh, team meeting, we kind of touched on the point that it it wasn't going to be enough. Well, I mean, it's obviously very cool that we won one Super Bowl. And he, Coach Carroll, even said, "I'm I probably shouldn't be talking about this yet, but we have a young team, and we're going to have an opportunity to be successful again and." We just got to be able to capture our same mojo, you know, um, come out with that same intensity when, when we spark spring practice. You know, we got it's going to be Doug Baldwin against Richard Sherman in practice. Those are some of the best matchups of the ones we have on our own practice facility. So right. I think that'll get us going for the next season. Right. And uh, and Texas Ranger infielder Russell, Russell Wilson at yeah. quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, as long as he's there, we know we're going to have some a, a great decision maker, a guy that can make all the throws. He's incredible. Yeah, he's unbelievable. I remember watching him in college and being like, "This guy is amazing." Just, but just his he's. I remember the first time we tried to get him on the, on our show. It was when he was a rookie. He got the job. Yeah. It was before week one. We wanted him on our our kickoff special, right? Remember that? Yeah, game three of the preseason is when he sealed it. The issue was getting him out of the film room. Yeah. They were like, "Listen." You know, he's prepping, and it's not like the team essentially saying he's unavailable no. and using the film room as an excuse. We've heard that before. Literally could not get him out of the film room. That he was so locked in, that was it. And 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 I was like, huh, that was something else. Yeah. And then he's the only podcast guest, and I'm not saying this because I'm expecting anything. Uh, he's the only one to send uh, – he sent a, a jersey and a thank you jersey note. Jersey with a handwritten signed note. I'm like, is this guy for real? And then I, I got a hat. You can have a hat for you. <laughs> you do have a hat yeah, for me. We do have well, hats. we'll take whatever. Yeah, okay. You know, we're not, we're not, we don't have our hand out. Fishing for gifts. You know what I mean? Yeah, we'll, we're not fishing. We'll for drop anything. some gifts off. Some, okay, some new air hats. Okay, I'll take that. But just, just hearing that, you know, he and the story that Pete Carroll told on our post game show was when he, John Schneider, was telling him when you meet Russell. He's going to sound in a way like he's too good to be true. Right, exactly, yeah. And he's making this stuff up because yeah. that's what he wants you to hear. Yeah. Except he means it. No, he's he's uh, he's another guy like Earl that's kind of like he's just there so early. You, like, try to beat him sometimes. You try to get there before him to see does he sleep, when did he leave, when's he going to be back. Where's he been all day? He's been in the film room. I see his car out there, but I haven't seen him around. Like I saw him in the weight room this morning, but where was he? This, he's he's probably there now. When he when you when you guys lost in Atlanta mm-hmm. last year in the playoffs, he came and uh, appeared on NFL Game Day Morning, our Championship Sunday edition, which is absurdly long. Like the next year's Championship Sunday edition might begin in five minutes from now. That's how long <laughs> it is. Okay, and so he was on it. Uh, I beat usually everybody to work because I I got to get there before and plus I, f- I feel like I'm I'm the leader of this program you yeah. know I got to be there You're early the I, I can't just I can't just show up ten minutes before you know yeah. put ass in seat you know as they're counting <laughs> down ten to one I got to you know I gotta, <laughs> so I show up my usual time quarter to four in the morning right around four in the morning walk into the green room and who's there already suited and booted looking over notes but Russell Wilson you're kidding and me. I look at him and I'm like dude you're gonna make me look bad. You're going to make me look bad. And he was the, uh, he beat me there by a good half hour, I was told. He was there studying, doing this, doing that. It was ridiculous. When we knew that we were going to be facing Peyton Manning, a guy you, you kind of hear about being uh, uh, somebody who prepares better than anybody else, we were thinking, we got Russell. We know the amount of hours that he puts in. I know he's not going to allow himself to be just – 
completely out prepared or go out there and feel any kind of nervousness or unpreparedness. So um, he's just one of those guys that you know you can always depend on. Well, bef- before I let you go, um, I want to just let you know what's in store for you. Because I have been to several Super Bowls, and it's going to come up two years from now, too. You might be there. I'm sure you're gonna, you'd love to be at the Super Bowl two years from now, playing in the 49ers house to win it all. Maybe your third in a row. I know I'm painting a very rosy picture here. <laughs> but when there are uh, milestone Super Bowls, like Super Bowl 50 coming up, mm-hmm. and Super Bowl 40 that took place um, I believe in Detroit, yeah. okay, what they do is they bring back the former Super Bowl MVPs to come out and they waved to the crowd, and it was an incredible pregame ceremony in Detroit. And Montana, and Jerry Rice, right? And all of these guys, Namath, Staubach, they even brought Bart Starr, he was around, he he made it. One after another after another. You're going to be part of that group. You are part of that group now, Malcolm. There's no taking that away from you. I don't know who would take it away from you, (laughs) but you're part of that fraternity. It's unbelievable. There really is. Uh, I'm sure I'll be standing there looking like me. Really? <laughs> My yeah, name? You. Yeah. Yeah, you. Yeah, you. That's it's, coming. Yeah. Th- that's the cool, though. That's pretty cool. As well it should. You deserve it, man. Thank you. The, Thank you. the ball bounced your way, but as you said, what did you say? Fate is what? What did you call it? You said fate is. That was a great is it line. An action. Is it fate an action? is an action. I think fate is that's an good. Yeah. I like that. I'm going to put that on a fortune cookie Go ahead. and stick that in there and take credit for that. Go ahead. Good to see you. Congratulations to everything. Good, good see you like I told you, I'm 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 so thrilled for you knowing your story and your background and what's happened. It's it's in it's incredible. Thank Enjoy you. it. Thank Enjoy you. it. That's Malcolm Smith, the Super Bowl forty eight most valuable player of the world champion Seattle Seahawks. That's got a good ring to it, doesn't it? Nice. Right here on the Rich Eisen podcast. And now we make the transition from the MVP of Super Bowl forty eight to the most recent winner of the Cannes Film Festival for Best Actor for his role uh in the superb film Nebraska for which he has been nominated for an Oscar for an Academy Award. Thrilled to have on the Rich Eisen podcast, Bruce Dern. Good to see you, sir. Thank you, Rich. It's fabulous to be here. You're kind of a one of a kinder. I appreciate well, I like you saying that. that. Sure. I appreciate you saying that. Right back at you well, on that front. Congratulations on everything that's been going on with uh with Nebraska and and um and obviously uh the kudos that have deservedly come your way. Bruce well, I, I appreciate it. It's uh, I've been at it a long time. And uh, I think the thing that's most gratifying of all, because obviously I'm a sports fanatic and a, mm-hmm. and a bit of a gambler, so <laughs> I wouldn't be here if I wasn't involved in all that. Okay. But uh, taking that parlance, I think the thing that's happened this year with Nebraska and, is that a lot of the folks are finally um, – starting to get together and saying Bruce Dern can play. He can play. And that's all I ever wanted in the whole business. I just wanted, I mean, to me, the highest compliment you give an athlete is, could he play or could he not? Mm -hmm. All of them can uh, venture into the uh, arena, as you say. But uh, 
Some do and some don't. But I mean, you know, I mean, you you can play Bruce Turn. I well, mean, but you, know, you can, I, you can play. I, I like that everybody seems to know it more this year. <laughs> than <they know> it <laughs> before. That helps. That certainly helps. You know. So you mentioned before we get into your film work, which I'd love to go in depth. I want to hit you up on some football first. Fine. Los Angeles Rams. I asked you when you when uh, you first walked in here. You're an L.A. Rams fan, I imagine, from back in the day when they were going to Super Bowls and when they were playing football here. You you, you said you they you go even further back. Well, I'm from Winnick, Illinois. I went to New Trier High School, which is right outside of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I should have been a Bear or a Cardinal fan. The Cardinals were there when I was young, too, before they moved to St. Louis. Two, yeah, two teams in Chicago. Uh, yeah, right. but I didn't care for either one of them. I like the Cleveland Rams. And in 46, the Cleveland Rams moved to Los Angeles. And I still lived, uh, I was, you know, 10 years old in 46. So um, I had to see all the Baron Cardinal games. I mean, I went to school with a girl whose dad owned the Cardinals. And, uh, you know, everybody knew the Hallis family in Chicago. And my family owned a big department store there called Carson Perry Scott and Company. My middle name is McLeish, and the McLeishes owned that. Okay. So, uh when the Rams came out here, and the same with the Dodgers, I was a Dodger fan from 40, well, 44 on. The first baseball game I ever saw in person, mm-hmm. uh, my grandfather McLeish, um, who was the present chairman of the board of Carson's, and who has a brother, Archibald McLeish, who was a famous poet and playwright, five Pulitzer Prizes and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, uh, uh, Colonel McCormick, who owned the Chicago Tribune and created it, um, wants to take you as his guest to the All-Star Baseball game. Mm-hmm. So I went to the All-Star Baseball game in Comiskey Park, and it was the day that Ted Williams made a sensational catch in left field and broke the tip of his elbow. Right. And that was just before he went then to Korea. And the that was the first game I saw where I had to have juice to get into the game. The game in 45, I went to the sixth game of the 45 World Series between the Cubs. Excuse me, but they weren't a World Series. And uh, they yeah. played the Tigers and Claude Passaw, who was a pitcher, outpitched Hal Neuhauser. It's fantastic. So, but, but when, so the, the Rams moved from Cleveland to Los Angeles, and you didn't become a Browns fan? because of So your allegiance no, was to the Rams. No, it not, wasn't Cleveland. Right. I mean, like right. Jim Murray used to say, uh, Cleveland is the mistake by the lake. <laughs> he hated to go there, and he hated to go to Philadelphia, but he could write. Yes, oh, he could. Boy, oh, yeah. And the Browns Browns fans are still lamenting the same the same oh, yeah. uh, issues right now, oh, yeah. even on this very day, Bruce. Oh, I know. So, um, so when they moved to Los Angeles, you were clearly uh, well-established here. When uh, Well, obviously, when they moved to Los Angeles, then you moved here right. and became part of uh, the Hollywood when set When I came here, here right? in 1961, okay. the Rams were Harlan Svari was a coach who was a on one of the giant linebackers on the great giant team, 57, 58, 59, 60. Mm-hmm. And um, they had, uh, I think they won two the first year I watched them. They played 14 then mm-hmm. the season. At first they were playing 12, then they played 14, and they were not good. And then um, they and then Waterfield became the coach for a little while, and then uh, the next guy they brought in kind of started the transition, started on their way, and then they brought in Tommy Prothrow. 
and he had been at UCLA, Uh and where he won, and he was a tactician. He knew what he was doing, but uh, and they drafted Roman Gabriel, who was from North Carolina or North Carolina State, one of the two, I forget, and Bill Munson, Um, and then they. they Terry Baker was at Oregon State in '63 and '64, and he won the Heisman. So they drafted him, and he just couldn't play. So you're making movies and going to the Coliseum watching football games every single Sunday. I mean, and and SC on Saturdays. And no uh, kidding. And UCLA played at the Coliseum then too. So you could conceivably see uh, UCLA one weekend, SC the next weekend, and the Rams both weekends if they were at home two weeks in a row. And then. W- when did the Rams become part of the jet set here in this town? When did that happen? George Allen. George when, when right. George Allen came, uh, he really knew how to get players, draft them, and he had a history in the league, and he knew, uh, you know, he knew how to win. He knew about locker room chemistry. He knew everything else. And the Rams were always, when they came in 51, they had, they averaged 51 points a year for a whole season. <laughs> and they beat Cleveland in the NFL championship game, 31-28. And uh, Cleveland could score, too, because Otto Graham was still there. And they sure. still had all those guys. Well, the Rams had, for example, two quarterbacks, Norm Van Brocklin, who was early in his career, like the second or third year from Oregon. And then they had Bob Waterfield, who was the old UCLA star after the war and was at the end of his career. Then their ends were Tom Fears and Elroy Hirsch. They had three backs in the backfield, Tank Younger, Dan Toller, and Dick Horner, and they called them the Bull Elephant Backfield, and they just scored. And then on defense, they had guys like Les Ritker and guys, uh, Hall of Famers. Hall of Famers, yeah, yeah. Hall of Famers. And and then it it died down in the mid-50s. They didn't do as well, and uh, I remember the first year I was an actor in New York, 58, the Rams opened in, against the Giants in the Polo Grounds. So I went to see that because we had a night show on the. I was in a play then called Sweet Bird of Youth. Right. And uh, so I went to. Uh, uh, I did my. Uh, went to the football game. And right. The Rams just got crushed. Crushed. And, and this was the opening day. Well, sure. But then, as you point out, George Allen comes to town. Yeah, that and was I, about eight years eight, later. Eight years later. And just my recollection just reading up about it, is the the stars, movie stars, began to appear on sidelines and, oh, yeah. and, and but appear. but never like they did for the Raiders. When well, the Raiders came, they stole the heart because James Garner owned 1% of the Raiders. And that was through the the car dealer who was Al Davis's partner. I forget the guy's name. Right. And he gave Garner a point. So Garner was on the sidelines. Well, Garner you know, had been Maverick. So everybody, and now he was a big television star, and a movie star. And so it became fashionable. And then also a lot of the USC alums who'd been on the sidelines Saturday afternoon just took a tent, I guess, and stayed there overnight. So they were still there on Sunday, you know. And I'm talking, I I think that the neatest thing I ever saw a coach say in my life Mm -hmm. USC in 1968 went to play Oregon State. They were the number one team in the country, USC. Mm-hmm. And it was when O.J. Simpson was a running back there. And they went up and Oregon State had a big fullback named Bill Inyert. They called him Earthquake Inyert. And it was a pissing down rain game. 
in the first week of November. And uh, Oregon State beat SC 6 to nothing in the rain. And on Monday morning, McKay had his usual news conference, you know, where all you guys come and talk to sure. him and so forth and so on. And he was criticized by all the press, even Jim Murray, uh, because he had O.J. carry the ball 47 times. <laughs> and uh, they said, why would you do that, coach? He said, uh, here. And he, he, there was a guy standing over. He says, hand me the football. And they handed him the football. And he turned to Jim Murray. And he says, here, Jim, hold the football. Not very heavy, is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's how you can hand it to him 47 times. That is a great line. Oh, it's cool. That is fantastic. He was really, I would say, because I was here at the time, the McKay influence certainly went into Sundays and helped the Rams, even though I don't know if he's a Ram fan How so? Or not. Well, because the Rams being, then they had much more territorial drafting than they do now. So he would have a lot of players that would go to the pros, as would UCLA. Mm-hmm. Because when uh, in, the, in the 50s, when uh, Coach Sanders was at UCLA, uh, they were number one team in the country. Mm-hmm. And they played the single wing until 1955. Mm-hmm. And Paul Cameron was a big All-American player who married Walt Disney's daughter. Um, and uh, then the Rams had another quarterback named Ron Miller who married another Disney daughter. Mm-hmm. So two Rams quarterbacks. And then the Rams, you know, started winning uh, football well, with, games with, in the with, 70s. With George Allen, they won. And then right. and then when uh, Chuck Knox came, they got even better than that. And then players like Jack Youngblood in the oh, mix. Oh, yeah. Well, they had two Youngbloods, Jim and Jack. One was the linebacker, the other was the end. And Youngblood played the Super Bowl mm-hmm. in 1980 with a broken leg. Right. He broke the leg Can in the imagine? playoff game against Tampa. And two weeks later, played the NFL game. And, I mean, I'm a gambler, so I can only tell you this. <laughs> I, uh, I had the Rams and 11 and a half mm-hmm. against Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. And Pittsburgh was a little better team. My quarterback had broke his hand in early December, Pat Hayden. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you a trivia question in okay. a second. But so another quarterback took over and played the Super Bowl game and had a great game. We scored early on a, on a trick pass play from Lawrence McCutcheon to uh, uh, Ron Jesse in the end zone, and we went up seven. Uh, we went up six nothing. Frank Corral missed the extra point. Mm-hmm. Well, the Rams lost by twelve. No, oh. <laughs> I had eleven and a half. That's why you and know Frank Corral. I just never could get it right <laughs> from. But the qu- trivia question mm-hmm. I'll give you is this: mm-hmm. What college? has supplied the most starting quarterbacks in the Super Bowl. What college has supplied the most starting quarterbacks in the Super Bowl? Wow. I'm only assuming, where did Ferragamo go? I'm assuming well, I'm putting two and two together right here. Because he's the quarterback we were talking I about. I know, I'm putting well, two and two together. Well, it's a trick question, but yes, Ferragamo went to the college. Okay. Can I, can I, can I phone a friend? Like, like, uh... Like who wants to be my Okay. Can, is, 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 is the caller there right now? The caller is on the, on okay. the phone line. Okay. And it's a topical man, school. Okay. The man knows his business. Jack Youngblood is now joining us right now. Bruce, oh, this wow. is how we roll here on this podcast. That's wow. that's Jack Youngblood. Jack, meet Bruce Stern. <laughs> how are you guys? How are you, sir? You know your football. I, I can hear that. Well, I'm getting there. How you ever played with a broken leg is beyond me. I mean, uh, if that didn't show uh, 
courage and teamwork and everything else, I don't know. And I forget how you even broke it in the Tampa game. Well, actually, I broke it in the Dallas ball game. Oh, oh, that was in the playoff before the Tampa game. Right. So you played two games on a broken leg. Three. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) What, including the game that you broke the leg, right? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you a cute story. In 1972, Jack Nicholson and I were doing a movie called The King of Marvin Gardens, and we were in Atlantic City. And in the NFL championship game, Dallas played San Francisco. And Jack was a, because Joe the Toe was a big kicker for San Francisco 49ers, Uh comes from Jack's high school in New Jersey. And so he was an ardent 49er fan. First play of the game, Brody goes back, throws a pass over the middle. Chuck Holly grabs it and goes 65 yards, and already the Niners are down 7 to nothing. So every time I think of Dallas, all I can think of is that crazy number 54 running all over the field yeah. until we got 85, who played a different position but played it kind of like a linebacker, I always felt, your whole career. is that? Uh, did you play defensive end at Florida? Yes. Oh. Yeah, I was... Uh... I, and well, I I started off as a as a middle linebacker, and they uh, and they they said you're you're too tall and skinny, so right. uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna put some put some meat on your bones and put your hand on the ground. Right. And I walked I walked around with a with a with my lip poked out for about a month. <laughs> <laughs> I always the first time I heard about you, Burt Reynolds is a good friend of mine, and as you know, he went to Florida State and he played there, and they had a good team, and. Uh, uh, his his father was the sheriff uh, or the the police chief of West Palm Beach, Florida, for yeah. thirty seven years, uh-huh. and his high school teammate was Dick Hauser, the Kansas City, City manager. No kidding. And in high school, they got in uh, uh, the second year of Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated came out in fifty four, and in fifty six, he got in a high school. Him and Hauser got of a high school thing because they both had mullets. <laughs> he told me later on and he said i went to a high school football game and he said after the football game they gave some award to a kid named jack youngblood and everybody wants him to go be a seminole and i said well where is he from he said doesn't matter he's going to florida (laughs) (laughs) hey quick story quick story bruce um Senior, senior in high school, I had I had no offers, no no letters, no nothing. Really, uh, Bill Parcells was was scouting for FSU for Bill Peterson at the time. Right, and and they, he sent him over because I'm 25 miles. My hometown was 25 miles from Tallahassee. Oh. so they sent him they sent him over so that he could. Uh, uh, he looked at us in the in the uh, in the championship game, and. <laughs> He went back and told Bill Peterson that there was a couple players over there that that are pretty good and and uh, you know they can play. And Peterson said, "Well, what about that tall, skinny kid?" And Bill Peterson, I mean uh, Parcells, said, "Coach, he'll never play college football." <laughs> I reminded him of that last year when we inducted him into the Hall. What do you say? Uh, he goes. He he leans over and he goes. You know, that really is the truth. <laughs> well, I remember you must have been, I'm trying to think, but you you must have been in high school when uh, Hendricks and Foreman were at Miami. Is that right? Correct. 
Right, because I remember when they came out and I saw Hendrix playing. He played tight. He played uh, defensive end too, didn't he? In, in college. Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, a hybrid hit, a linebacker, defensive end type. That's amazing. Right. This and, is you're on fire, Bruce Dern. I had, uh, you're yeah, an encyclopedia. It's my life. I, mean, <laughs> well, I thought making movies was your life. I mean, well, that's yeah, maybe is, your profession, but football is your life. I love oh, that. Absolutely. This is fantastic. And, and and pro football. And the reason that my life is pro football like, is because I have always been in life fascinated with opera. I couldn't sit through an opera, but the opera and life. Mm-hmm. And professional football is opera. And it's opera because every now and then you'll get a guy, it'll come out of Catawba College or someplace like that, who will make a play in a game that you'll never forget. And uh, when I was uh, first a Ram fan in the 50s, they had a little kid from L.A. City College here named Willie White who also was an alternate on the Olympic team at 100 meters. And uh, they'd throw to him every single play. And that's when the 49ers had R.C. Owens, who was the guy that made that alley-oop Yeah, play, of course, you know? yeah. And with uh, what the Y.A. Tittle as a quarterback. Yeah, everyone was make- mentioning that R.C. Owens play when Terrell Owens scored a touchdown in the playoffs. A lot of people were, were talking about similarities oh, really? and all of that stuff. Right. So, Jack, what was it like having folks like Bruce Dern and, and, and actors um, back in the 70s? I was never on the sidelines, sir. I, I'll tell you this. The, 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 the worst thing you can do yeah. if you bet on sports <laughs> is get to know the athletes. That's true. And uh, I've always felt uh, gambling on sports involves two things, mm-hmm. money management and injuries. And so I try and find guys in seven or eight cities every year that could tell me that what's going on. That huh? The young blood was hurt, and nobody told me he got hurt in the Dallas game. For oh, Christ's sake, Jack! <laughs> so you were never on the sideline in that regard. No, no, I, I I did a movie once in 1967 with Charlton Heston, a football movie, and it was called Number One. And our team that we were modeling, and this will tell you how upset a person can get, were the New Orleans Saints in their first season. And John Meekham owned the team. And we went down to New Orleans, and their first six games, we went with the team. Charlton Heston's, the guy was, it was about an old guy, 40, that mm-hmm. was playing out an expansions team's first year, and they didn't win a game all year. And at the end of the year, he stands up in the locker room, and he says to them, look, all you guys are from other schools, other towns and everything, but God damn it, we live in this city. Let's win one game, for God's sake. And it was against the Bears, and it was their last game of the year, and they had to win one, and they go out, and the old quarterback helps them win one. Well, the old quarterback's player on the field that played him was Billy Kilmer. The guy that played me was Dan Abramowitz. So who could go catch a football? Trust me. I mean, he'd dive into the stands. He, uh, he was just like kind of a, a kamikaze kid, so to speak, you know. And that was fun. And the, the coach was Tom Fears, who started as a Hall of Fame player out here as an end with the Rams. And uh, it was fun being around a bunch of guys that were everywhere. I mean, uh, the one guy that got my attention the most was what was the big uh, the guy uh, – Atkins, Doug Atkins, because mm-hmm. in the winter time he was a professional wrestler and wrestled with a big country hat on. Some of these names are familiar to you, Jack. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and you, you remember Bruce? Doug Doug wound up being a sheriff. Oh, absolutely. Up in Tennessee. Oh, I know. 
And he could yeah. play, sir. He could yeah. play. Can you imagine? Can you imagine him him trying to stop in somebody on the side of the road? I mean, he was <laughs> <laughs> no, he was big. He was six eight and what two seventy five or eighty, and 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 could high jump. He was a high jumper in in, in high school. Oh my god! Yeah, and he used to jump over. Tack, a tackle would try to try to cut him, and, and he'd just hurt him. Well, and never, and, never and, miss a step. and your predecessor did it too, pretty well too, Deacon. I mean, yeah, people people forget that before the head slap, uh, then came Deacon, and he said, "No, let me show you something y'all never seen before." <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he taught he taught me those those uh, those special moves too, and uh, it, uh, it it played well in my uh, the first several years so jack what was it like being being uh, in los angeles when when celebrities like bruce stern even though he wasn't on the sideline were were around your team or didn't you tell me that rickles once was on the plane flight telling jokes didn't you tell me that once oh rickles rickles hung out with uh with carol rosenblum quite a bit and uh used to come used to come to saturday nights we called it burgers and beers and we'd have a we'd everybody come in uh in the room and and sit around and have a have a couple of beers and 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 hamburgers, and uh, Carol would would always bring some women with him, and and a lot of times he uh, he brought Jonathan Winters, and we we would finally we would finally have to, we'd miss curfew every time Winters was there because we'd just sit around and laugh and laugh and laugh. Oh, I mean, absolutely. just listening to him. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I don't. I don't think they do burgers and beers the day before the game in the National Football League anymore. That's that's definitely. No, I don't know. I know. Uh, I know. In '89, uh, he'll tell you. Uh, Jack will tell you. I mean, the '80 Rose Bowl game. I mean, the '80 Super Bowl game. Wendell Tyler went out and had a bunch of hot dogs and left them in the locker room. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that right, Jack? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and a couple of them on the sideline. <laughs> Man, Jack, you're the best for calling in. I appreciate it. Can you help me with this uh, with with this trivia question to bring it full circle? Where did Farragamo go to school? Do you remember? Uh, Nebraska. There you go. Okay. So Nebraska. The question was: What college supplied the most starting quarterbacks in the Super Bowl? Uh, Alabama had three. Notre Dame had three. One school had five. And what will blow your mind is it's a Pac-10 school. So, okay. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Vinny went up to uh, uh, to Stanford, didn't he? No. Ferragamo what? started as the second-string quarterback to Barkowski at Cal. Cal. At Cal. His That's senior right. year, there he transferred go. to Nebraska, oh. where he won a national championship for Osborne. So who are the other? Yeah. So the answer is Cal. Aaron Rodgers. And the Cals are Joe Cap, Joe Cap, Craig Morton, who started for two different teams That's in the right. Super Bowl, That's Dallas right. and Denver, uh, Ferragamo, and Aaron Rodgers. There you go. Huh. And we'll throw in Jeff Kent because he was a good second baseman. <laughs> oh, man. Jack, thanks. Hey, Bruce, you need to write a book. 
I did. I wrote one that was out six years ago. Where were you, prick? Why didn't you buy it? (laughs) It's called Things I've Said But Probably Shouldn't Have. (laughs) And uh, I think you're in it, actually. I I was never sure. Somebody told me you were not related to Jim Youngblood, right? Correct. Okay, and somebody said it was the other way around, and I said, no, Jim Rungle, but just don't look like somebody that was uh, near Swampland when he grew up. So, <laughs> Anyway, it's a, it's a real thrill to me to talk to you. I never got to meet you except somebody, Burt Reynolds once said he shook your hand and you almost broke it. So, <laughs> Is that true, Jack? You almost broke Burt Reynolds' hand? Is that true? Well, yeah, because he was a Seminole. (laughs) (laughs) The roots go deep. Jack, thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. I hope all is well with you. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. You You bet. bet. That is Pro Football Hall of Famer Jack Youngblood. I figured you might enjoy that. Huh? I figured you might enjoy that oh, having Jack call in while you're here. Fabulous. He's the man. I mean, I mean he's like a, he's out of Central Casting if you think about oh, it. Oh, straight out of Central he's, Casting. He's, he's kind of football's Marlboro man. He is. You know, he definitely. I mean, he absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, and and, and I, 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 when I, when I got to meet him at the Pro Football Hall of Fame the, for the first time, I met him. I was I was I was starstruck. I'm not going to lie. I My mean, business partner Wendy Guerrero, who's outside right now with me today, mm-hmm. her father. I mean, her grandfather mm-hmm. was the original Marlboro man. The, the literal original Marlboro man. Yes, man. Yes, sir. No and, kidding. Yeah. And he was uh, he was a rodeo cowboy guy, and uh, they were up in uh, Santa Maria, California, and he went around California breaking horses. And uh, they saw him one day running horses because up in Santa Maria you can run them in the ocean, so they cool down mm-hmm. on surf and stuff like that. They do it at Del Mar, too. Sure. But, uh, and uh, they said, come on down, and uh, he became the first Marlboro. My gosh, your stories are fantastic. His name was Harry Rose. So, cool. what, uh, I, I definitely want to touch upon your, your film career, Bruce, even though your your football acumen is, is off the charts. Um, who Who is the most talented person you've ever worked with? Jack Nicholson. You didn't stutter. That was quick. Right. Why is that? Uh, because we both got in the business basically for the same reason, uh, same time, but different places. He left Manasquan, New Jersey, and came out here to California, and I went to New York, and I began under contract to Ilya Kazan, who was, uh, he had five of us at the time. He had the director. Rip, Rip Torn, Pat Hingle, Geraldine Page, Lee Remick, and Bruce Stern, and I was kind of the baby of that group. Sure. Jack came out here, and when we first met each other around 61, I realized that there's one thing I've always looked for in the actors I work with, and that is they're going to have to look me in the eye. And Jack looked me right dead in the eye, and I said, I have a partner for life. And uh, he's been my best friend. He gave me a good luck coin. Last week, uh, we went to a basket together and uh, watched this group of people I have down at the gym this year, and I can't even describe it. <laughs> he took about the Lakers, right? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I know. You're, you're... But he gave me a, a gold coin for good luck. He's the first guy we showed Nebraska to, Alexander Payne, because he starred in About Schmidt about for Schmidt. Alexander Payne. Yep. So, and he's uh, thrown screenings for us, and he's really, really been behind the movie, and he's a sweetheart. He was a jock. He had a great 
about 18 foot set shot in high school that he shot one-handed, and he was very competitive that way. And he, I would say the two most competitive, the three most competitive actors I've ever worked with. Yeah. And I'm not talking about in the work now, because acting is, a, is teamwork. As you know, I never did a team sport. I've run all my life. I'm a runner. Mm-hmm. So I missed a team sport. But um, movies are a team sport. You're only as good as your partner. Sure. And the three most competitive guys in other areas uh, afterward on shooting were Nicholson, Bob Redford, and Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw. Oh boy! Who, I, I, what a, I'm a, such a fan of his work. Oh, and did you meet him on Black Sunday? Yeah. Is that where you met him? Yeah. And Black Sunday, another one. Talk about sports movies. I know. I, I wanted to get that? into that. I wanted to. And there is a scene in Black Sunday mm-hmm. where uh, John Frankenheimer, who was the director, what a director, is in the booth with Bob Short, and uh, who's the head of Goodyear. And there's a scene in the movie when they go down with Joe Robbie and they say, you know, we're going to have to cancel the Super Bowl because if something happens here, no planes can fly in here at all. He said, well, what about the president? Well, he's just going to have to walk in. He can't fly in a plane in. <laughs> and Joe Ryan, so maybe the best thing to Robert Shaw says is cancel the Super Bowl. And Joe Robbie says, cancel the Super Bowl. That's like canceling Christmas. Right, exactly. You can't do that. So Frank and I was in the booth and there's a shot in the movie. We had eight of the best cameramen in the world. Each one had a special assignment. And that was the great Dallas-Pittsburgh game in 76. Super Bowl ten. Yeah. And uh, about halfway through the third quarter, only the police knew what was going to happen. Robert Shaw is up at the top of the stadium on one side and has to run. He notices the blimp is not in the sky anymore, which scares him because he knows, uh uh-oh, it's the blimp it's going to happen. Yes. Because why is it gone? Mm -hmm. He runs all the way down the the stands, cuts across the field, just as Lynn's, uh, right next to Lynn's, on the playing field, right near the end Because you shot this during the game. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right. And each camera had a different thing to do. Well, Haskell Wexler's camera was on Robert Shaw. And so he followed him all the way down, and Shaw got a little panicked for some reason. Maybe he was out of breath or anything else. And as he cut through the end zone, he went into the playing field just as Lynn Swan broke off a route. Instead of following into the corner, he went the other way, and they almost collided. Shaw then runs all the way into the booth, and he says, where's the blimp? What happened to the blimp? And he says, Frank and I said, get him out of here. Get that guy out of here. What is he? And they didn't know who Shaw was. He's an Israeli agent. He's not, you know. Right. And every year for several years, and I wasn't thrilled about it, uh, after the Super Bowl, CBS would show Black Sunday. Black Sunday. So, <laughs> right. I mean, well. Uh, d- and get- it's the only movie in my career I would never do again. Why is that? Honestly. Yeah. Because you could do that. You know what? That's my point, too. If for, for, for fans uh, who may be unfamiliar, even though I don't know how you could, but Black Sunday, well, certainly folks like my producer who are young, um, Black Sunday is a movie that probably could not be made today. Because oh, you, shot, you shot it during Super Bowl X. Right. Good, the Goodyear blimp people uh, uh, agreed Gave to their be name part to of something it. That's right, because apparently up. Frankenheimer, who, by the way, directed The Manchurian Candidate, oh. which is one of the greatest films of all time. And Why make of, it again? I don't know that question. <laughs> I, I, I know. I know. Why make it again? Certainly because if 
Manchurian Candidate, you need to see, Chris. I, I, I have sadly seen the Denzel. Well, uh, no, no, forget yeah, that. Just yeah. forget like you never saw that. Because it was, be, talk about beyond ahead of its time, uh, the Manchurian Candidate actually was removed from the theaters, right? Because Sinatra took it out of the theaters after Kennedy was assassinated. Right. And I'll tell you an interesting story. Please. A, a movie story. Please. When we were doing Black Sunday, I had just finished doing Family Plot for Mr. Hitchcock, which turned out to be his last film. And uh, Frankenheimer came up to me one day. We were down at the Blimp Base by the 405 there in the uh, Harbor, or whatever that freeway is. Yeah, in Carson, right? Yeah, right, Uh right. Uh And uh, that's where the Blimp Base is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills now is right behind it, but that's where the Blimp Base was. And I asked him, he asked me one day, he said, do you ever think Hitch would come and have lunch here with me? I said, John. He's not going to sit on your set and watch somebody make a movie, number one. Number two, he doesn't even see his own movies. He said, well, I just wanted to tell him how fabulous he was and is and what an influence he is on me. Cut to the chase. I went to uh, I used to have a home in Lake Tahoe, and every weekend I flew to the home in Lake Tahoe. And uh, I flew on PSA Airlines, which is no longer uh, around. Mm -hmm. And the desk clerk who would hold the plane for me occasionally to go to Tahoe was a kid named Jim Immersion. His dad, Tony, was Mr. Hitchcock's driver. (laughs) And so uh, I went to Tony one day and I said... uh, can I come over and see Hitch tomorrow? Ask him if he, he says, oh, yes, Bruce, come on in. And so we arrange something. One night we're driving home, and I tell Frankenheimer from down there, and we both live in Malibu Colony, and I say we're going on Sunset, and I just need to go to the Bel Air Hotel to live some, leave something for my friend Michael Ritchie, who was a director who was staying there. Mm-hmm. Frankenheimer says, I want to go home. Frankenheimer said, I want to go home. I don't want, you know, so forth and so on. I just said it'll be three minutes. So we go in. I said, just come in a bar. You're going to have a drink in the car. You might as well have it where it's legal right here in the bar. <laughs> sure. So he has them. He orders a little scotch. And uh, I sit down, and by the time I sit down, through the door mm-hmm. comes Tony Immersion with Mr. Hitchcock. No way. Frankenheimer was not a guy who ever had problem delivering words. Sure. But he had a slight stutter, and he went white. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. Hitch walks all the way up to the table. Tony went up to the bar. And I said, oh, Hitch, thank you so much for coming. And John was standing up. And John was big. He was 6'6". Six, six, mm-hmm. And a uh, really good-looking guy, tailored very well. And uh, he leans across, and Hitchcock shook his hand. And uh, he said, Mr. Hitchcock, what a pleasure. Hitchcock said, Frankenheimer, and sat down in a chair. Well, Hitch was so wide, he couldn't get in an ordinary chair with arms like this sure. so when he'd sit down in it and it had arms like this when he got up the whole chair came <laughs> with him and he would always turn to me and he said a hand please bruce and i'd have to pull the legs off his butt so the chair could go back down so they sit down and frankenheimer doesn't know what to say i said you want something to drink hitch he said no no that's fine and suddenly he turns to frankenheimer mm-hmm. and we're looking straight at him like this Mm-hmm. And he said, Frankenheimer, why did you leave the light on in the photographer's booth 
while Raymond assembles the rifle in Manchurian Canada. John got tears in his eyes because he couldn't believe, number one, he ever saw Manchurian Canada, plus that scene. And mm-hmm. and John was flustered. He didn't know what to say. He didn't think Hitchcock was no, going to pick his Jesus, brain, right? No, I mean, absolutely. Sure. And he said, uh, 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 probably a 25-second delay, you know, uh, about five seconds faster than Usain Bolt will run 200 <laughs> meters. But, I mean, he just, he sits there, and suddenly he says, because, sir, that's what you'd have done. Nice. And Hitchcock says, Exactly, Frank and Hannah. <laughs> we need to leave the light on so the audience can see just what kind of mayhem the antagonist is up to. Oh. Nice meeting you, Frankenheimer. Got up? Uh, a hand, please, Bruce. <laughs> I let the chair out, and he was gone. He wasn't there more than three minutes. And Frankenheimer, because we were going home to Malibu from there, uh, I had tears in his eyes all the way home and cried. He wow. just couldn't believe the guy. Had what a moment. What a moment that you put that together. And he, seriously, I mean, Manchurian Candidate for me is a, uh, is one of oh. the all-time great films. Big stuff. With Sinatra, obviously. Angela Lansbury oh. was spectacular. Won an Oscar for it. She was as evil as they come. Oh, boy. Uh, James Gregory was in that, yeah. too, right? And, and, and He played the vice president. Right. It, well, he... he, he Clearly, uh, you know, was a, a, a McCarthy send up and it was oh, really something of its time as well as well, way ahead of its time in terms of filmmaking. And he was a director on Black Sunday in which you played um, a deranged individual who was going to fly a, 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 the Goodyear blimp into the Super Bowl f- as a terrorist act. Right. And today, again, uh, Summerall and Brookshire were yeah, part of this movie. Broadcast. Yeah, they were they were in the booth for this and the NFL. Pete Rozelle through I guess was it Robert Evans who was the he was Producer. producing it right yeah he got, he gets the NFL to to let you s- film during the, the Super, Super Bowl like you just shot draft day at draft and that was a pain that was at a, the draft oh my lord I couldn't even imagine today saying okay during a Super Bowl you can have free reign of the place and then take an iconic image like the Goodyear blimp, and use it as a potential terrorist threat. That would never And Goodyear totally today. behind it. I mean, they <laughs> were... <laughs> they knew it, right? And they knew what the movie was about, and Nick Nicolari, who was the pilot, was my co-pilot, so he could tell me I had to kill him immediately so he could lay on the floor and tell me what to do to lift the goddamn thing over the cows in the barns. You were, I mean, fly, you were flying the blimp? Well, I... I, I uh, you know, I had to... This is the reason I didn't do the movie. Okay. It takes 11 guys on the ground to hold the guy wires while you're getting speed. Because the blimp can only go 60 knots. Right. And it's not supposed to go above 4,000 feet because helium can become dicey after that. And there's 2,000... Uh, there's 270,000 chambers in the blimp, each one separate from the other filled with helium. And every year when they fly it up to Frisco or Pebble Beach, uh, you know, this sure. last weekend or this weekend, I guess, or no, last yeah, weekend, yeah, right. they, they'll go over viaducts and up there along the five and the little towns and everything. Guys will take pot shots at it and they'll hit it, but uh, it's only one chamber they're going to hit. But I'll tell you something, uh, classic, you want to talk about Bob Evans. I worked for two genius producers in my career. Sure. Bob Evans and Joe Levine. Uh, Joe Levine produced The Graduate, Lion in Winter, um, Carnal Knowledge. I mean, he was just a genius guy. And um, what happened was the end of Black Sunday, when we shot it, ended just like the book does. 
where the blimp, the people are in the stadium, and on a clear, sunny day, suddenly half the stadium goes into shadow. And they all look up, and there's no clouds. And Mm -hmm. then they see the blimp isn't 4,000 feet. It's just about to hit the light stand. Right. And everybody panics. And that's the end of the movie. And on the screen, it said, the screen went black. It says, Black Sunday. Think about it. And this was four years after Munich. Right. So that's dicey. Now, they went to show the movie to the exhibitors in Florida that were going to have it out. The exhibitors were angry, really angry. And they said, what do you mean uh, you're going to release this? We don't want to show it in our theaters like this. Yeah. And uh, Frankenheimer and Evans, both Jewish guys, said, and Charles Bludorn, who was the head of Gulf and Western, but also was the head of Paramount because mm-hmm. Gulf and Western owned Paramount sure. at the time. He said, uh, what do you guys mean? And they said... <laughs> I guess I can say this. Go for it. Yeah, bleep it out. What he said was, the Jew has to win. (laughs) And they wanted Robert Shaw to stop the blimp from going over the Super Bowl and killing maybe 87,000 people. Right. So we went back to Florida and redid for two weeks the whole end of the movie where the players come down on the field and help the fans. It's mayhem. You got Franco Harris picking people up and Staubach picking people up. The game never ended. It's interrupted. While Shaw is uh, dragging the blimp out over the ocean so the darts disperse there. Mm -hmm. Now, the great thing about that question is Mm -hmm. Bob Evans, who's now made the movie there, and they're out of there, and it's, you know, seven months later, uh, says, goes down there, and Robbie's there. Robbie can't help him. And he says to Robbie, well, you know, uh, what do you need from me? He said, I need 40,000 people for two days. He said, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, well, in the morning, we'll put the 40,000 on this side, and at lunchtime, we'll move them around to the other Make side. Make it look like it's a full And we'll Super give Bowl away stadium. a bunch of cars and stuff at the end of the day, so they have to stay, because in their lunchbox will be their raffle ticket. <laughs> so they gave away, you know, big home sets of in, uh, and cars. Mm-hmm. And so Evans said, okay. So he went to the United Way, and he said... If you'll get me 40,000 people a day in the Orange Bowl, because it, it was still in Miami, Bowl, uh-huh. uh, in the stadium, I'll give you the John Frankenheimer crew that's shooting it, and they'll shoot every commercial for you with a full Hollywood crew for 25 years. And that's how he got them. No way. And Paramount shot all those United Way films in conjunction with them from the, when they began. That for people have been watching years. forever and yeah. NFL yeah. games. Wow. So I and, did and not all from Black Sunday. No. And is that pretty cool? It's beyond pretty cool. I mean, it's beyond that's, cool. That's this Bob whole Evans. conversation has been beyond cool. No. <laughs> but a couple more movies I want to hit with you. Obviously, yeah. Nebraska being one, but another one uh, briefly as. A, a, a sports film that uh, that championship season right. that you were involved in that with an, right. another heavy hitting cast. Right. What was that film like to you and, and that work that clearly that was a hit on Broadway? Yeah, Jason Miller wrote it mm-hmm. and uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. And for you're good at movie, right? Yeah. Okay, for movie trivia. Oh, the same Uh-oh. year he I won can't the, get Youngblood on the, the phone. The same for this one. year. 
the same year he won the Pulitzer Prize yes. on Broadway for writing that championship season, he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in one movie. Same guy. The same guy was that... Uh, and he also played Coach Parsegian in Rudy. Oh. Jason Miller. Don't tell. Let him Hold go. Hold on a minute. So he played, he played Coach he, Parsegian in Rudy. Rudy. But... Uh, Twelve years earlier, he well, I'm a something. Michigan guy, so I hate that movie. <laughs> he does really. hate I really have seen it well, once and never again. If I, um, if I hear one more vomitous Notre Dame fan, <laughs> pitch that stuff out on me. Yes, and his son, Jason Patrick, that's Jason Miller's son, who's a wonderful actor. Yes, of course, and uh, a, a brilliant actor actually. Uh-huh. And uh, he's another Notre Dame puker, but he got very upset later on. But so he was in that. Friend. So he was in that championship season. Well, no, Jason Miller wrote that right. championship season and directed the movie, movie of it that we did. Right. And what movie did he get nominated for an Academy Award in which he had an extremely prominent role? Hmm. I, I don't know the answer to that. He was the priest, Father Karras, who went out the window in the exorcist. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> You could have given me fifteen million yeah. guesses. No, but this is what we do it. on set. When I talk competitive, man, there's a Elliot Gould and Joey Walsh are the two best trivia guys I've ever known. Yeah, uh, Elliot is a pathetic Dodger fan like me. We've been going <laughs> since, uh, and Joey's father yeah. sold. Uh, sightseeing tickets on Broadway mm-hmm. so when I grew and Joey was a star when he was nine years old he starred in a movie called The Juggler mm-hmm. uh, I mean uh, Hans Christian Andersen with Danny Kaye he was a little kid and, and Elliot's been nominated for Oscars yes of He's course fabulous of course and and that championship season I mean and Elliot Gould told me the best quote I've ever heard in my life let me in hear that all of sports okay he had a chance to sit down with John Wooden about I don't know two years before coach died and he said, uh, and, El- and Coach Wooden wanted to talk about Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice. He wanted to talk about MASH. He wanted to talk all that Coach stuff. Wooden wanted to talk yeah, about yeah. that. Okay. And so Elliot did a little of that. And then he said, Coach, let me ask you a question. I've read your book. And I'm sure everybody, you know, the five, the mm-hmm. pyramid of success and all that, that, that book. And he said, but I, I wondered now as you look back, are there important things in life uh, more than what was just in the book. Or, I mean, to you, are there essentially important things? He said two things. He interrupted him. Mm-hmm. He said two things. Love and balance. He said, I would rather go and watch a high school girl's gymnastic meet mm-hmm. than I would watch high school basketball. And when I coached in 63 and we won our first national championship, Goodrich went on, Hazard went on, Erickson went on. They all went to be pros. One guy didn't, and he was the best athlete I ever had because he paid the point in the diamond defense, and that was Jack Hirsch, who went to Fairfax High School here in the city. And he says, Jack never gets any pub, but I needed athletes. And in the fall, I made them run cross country. <laughs> but it was all about balance to him. And that was just, I just love that quote. That's awesome. You know. So where does Nebraska, where does that role <coughs> that you're nominated for right now, where does that rank in your career? In oh, your it's mind, the best Bruce? movie I ever was in. I was in, I've been in some heavyweight movies. You sure I have. I thought they were heavyweight. I don't know if the audience no, is they, on them, We all do. I, I, I thought Coming Home is a fabulous movie. I made a little movie about teenage beauty pageants called Smile. Um, which I thought was a good movie. Um, 
I think The King of Marvin Gardens with Nicholson and I is a good movie. Uh, Jason Patrick and I made a movie called After Dark, My Sweet. And um, I don't look back well. Right. Because uh, Charlton Heston told me, and he went to Nutria also. He and Rock Hudson both went to Nutria. Mm -hmm. They were way, you know, 15 years before me. Um, But I I asked him one day, he said, well, what have you done that you like so far? He was testing me. And I said, this was 1967. I said, well, a couple of things like this or that and the other thing. And he said, well, you know, you're talking about films in the past. Don't do that. An actor is only as good as his next film. Mm -hmm. And so I'm excited because of this, because I'm interested to see how people will see me in the future. I mean... Uh, Woody ain't a sports fan. No, trust me. And Woody, he's not a fan of much. Oh, no. if you if you <laughs> maybe, sit at if you sit at, if you sit at home plate in Dodger Stadium, right. in a night game, all the right field lights are out in Woody. So he's playing with two <laughs> thirds of the field. Right. And um, I Alexander Payne's an incredibly gifted director. He's made six films. He's six for six as far as I'm concerned. My daughter Laura starred in his first film, mm. Citizen Ruth. That's right. And uh, Jack starred in uh, in uh, about Schmidt. Sideways. Sideways. And, is great. And, oh right. Sideways and the uh, the uh, uh, election. Descendants. Yeah. Election. Major Witherspoon, a movie star. Um, won two of the last three Oscars for writing. This year he's nominated Best Director, Best Movie. Uh, June Squibb, uh, who's the lady in it, who's mm-hmm. pretty outrageously fabulous. Right. And she played Jack's wife in About Schmidt. That's right. Will Forte also oh, playing Will your Forte. son. You know what? Rich, he is the linchpin to our movie, and I'll tell you why. He's about as nice a guy as I've ever met in the industry. He's really a nice guy. You know, he's a Raider fan. He's just about to say he's a big Raider fan. Lafayette, so, I mean, give me a break. But, uh, you know, that's like telling me, well, I'm a Dodger fan. I mean, I'm a Giant fan, and I got to go out and root for a guy playing shortstop for me for a whole season named Joe Patini. I mean, when you got Kruko at second and looking around for another guy with the double names, Uribe, Uribe, you know. And so I – but – uh, Will had worked for 20 years mm-hmm. making a living as a, a successful out there comic. Saturday Night Live kind of stuff, which he was on. For yeah, McGruber. McGruber. McGruber, and, yeah, and, oh, McGruber. The kid had to run down the street with a piece of celery sticking out his butt. I mean, what is that? <laughs> and so then he says, I mean, uh, anyway, and he comes to our movie and Alexander said to me, I said, I cast Will Forte because he sent me a tape and I believed him. And I believe if Will Forte will just relax and play the role, we'll see the decency and the nice guy and everything else um, that he is. And he did that. And that's really taking one for the team, if you will. Sure. Because that part had to have that in that role. And that's what Alexander does. The biggest thing about Alexander is, I mean, everybody can say to me, you know, you got a chance to do this. I've already won can a few other awards for this role. But the biggest win I'll ever have in my career was when Alexander gave me the part. That's the biggest win I'll ever have. No kidding. Because somebody said to me, and I didn't realize, I told Alexander, I didn't realize until a couple weeks into shooting, um... I knew immediately when I saw the script on the page, it was an at-bat. 
I didn't know it was the at-bat the at, at that bat. time. Sure. And But then halfway through, the about two weeks into the movie, I turned to Alexander, who doesn't know that much about sports, and I said, in parlance to what I'm dealing with every day, I didn't know it was an at-bat where we were down a run, and I was leading off, and it was the bottom of the ninth, and there were two out. <laughs> so that was how I approached the role. I knew, and he said a wonderful thing to me that any actor or any artist would be absolutely thrilled to have said to him, including yourself, because you, sir, are an artist at what you do. Oh, please. Because there's, Thank no, you. It's not BS. Okay. Because you invected humor into the sports with a touch of irreverence, and that means you get it. Thank you. And they're out there doing it. All the guys we're talking about today mm -hmm. are out there doing it every day. A legend on the telephone. They bring it every day. When you see that and you have a locker room mentality on the air, mm -hmm. which is paying tribute to the gladiators that do what they do. Wow. And the thing that uh, I get the most uh, interest about in this is that... Um, the guy said to me the first day of shooting, uh, Faden Papa Michael, who's a cameraman who also is nominated for an Oscar, fabulous job. And mm -hmm. Alexander fought to get black and white. He wouldn't have made it if he couldn't make it black and yeah, white. Yeah, that's an interesting choice. Well, obviously. you go out there and they can say it's uh, red and white all I want to. Uh, but in downtown Omaha, it's just Nebraskan people. Mm -hmm. And uh, the one thing, and he lives in Omaha still. He's never been to a football. I think he went once to a football game. But right. he, he said uh, the night that we opened in Omaha with uh, Nebraska was the same night they gave Osborne a 50-year tribute at Nebraska. And the next morning, uh, dinner was there and our movie opened. And he said, you know what? You don't think I know sports? We beat Tom, Tom Osborne. Osborne. <laughs> you know, we made more money than they raised for his thing. And so that was cool. But the movie did very, very well. But what he said to me is he said, Bruce, I wonder if you do something you've never done in your career before. Or we don't think you have. I said, what's that? He said, why don't you let Faden and I do our jobs? And I said, meaning what? He said, don't show me anything. Let me find it. No kidding. And that was it. I knew I'd had a partner who would be my partner for life. I didn't need to push. I didn't need to overact. I didn't need to sell anything or show things. And I've had a career of having to do that because I never, I was the third cowboy from the right for a long goddamn time. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I played horrible guys that never had beginning and middle and an end. So I'd always, you know, add what Nicholson calls dernsies, you know, little things that, that help out. Mm -hmm. And uh starred in a sports movie called Drive, he said, that Nicholson directed. We shot at the University of Oregon the night we started shooting the night after Oregon broke UCLA's 88-game winning streak. <laughs> and that was uh, Stan Love, who is Ke uh, Kevin Love's uncple, you know, from the Beach Boys. It's just, no, Kevin Love's, getting better. Kevin Love's dad greatest. was uh, Kevin Love's dad. They were Beach Boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. uh, so... Um, I just feel that it's. I forgot the point I was going. No, you were saying that bring that that, that what Alexander Payne oh, said yeah, what, and what this. Oh yeah, what, what Alexander said by that, and then he backed it up by being there. So, and the perfect example is, uh, you know, they say, well, can you point something out in the movie that shows that? Yeah, on the page 
are two scenes that have one line that I have in each scene that I spent my entire 56, whatever it is, career uh, trying to do, I would say myself, because they weren't on the page. We're going through the old house. And I say, this was my room. Mm-hmm. And my wife says, yeah, this is where Woody's little brother David died. And Will Forte says to me, you remember that, Dad? And the line that's written that I have get to say, I was there. Who writes that stuff? Right. I mean, just genius. And Alexander didn't write this. Bob Nelson did. Mm-hmm. But Alexander was hired on to do it or wanted to do it, not just hired on. Sure. You know. And then at the end of the movie, I'm in the car. Didn't, you know, I don't want to tell the movie. Well, I don't know. Hopefully some have seen it. Right. But uh, uh, I'm in the car with that hat on, mm-hmm. a little prize winner hat. And Will Forte gets in the car and he says, Dad, Dad, I'm here. Mm. Who writes that? Come on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that was terribly moving. And again, you were spectacular in this. And this is all, already one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done on oh, the show. And and you. I am a huge fan of yours. Oh, thank you. And could, and uh, again, that that's an honor. Thank you so much for coming in here. Well, thank and you being, for having me. When they said When they said Rich Eisen wants you to be on the radio. I said, give me a bait. Rich Eisen will cut me a new one right on the air. <laughs> no, no, never, never. Uh, and and uh, thank you again. Good luck. Oh, ro- I am rooting much. for you, sir. You deserve oh. it. And, you uh, deserve it. I, I guess I can give a pat on the back to the, uh, there was no NFL network I got in 76. But when I think that, I went to Penn to college. And mm-hmm. my first two years at Penn, I never saw Penn win a football game. Yeah. Franklin Steve, Field? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Steve Sebo was the coach. Penn was still in the Ivy League. I mean, had just gone back into the Ivy League. So my freshman year, uh, first team to come in was Duke. They beat us 47-6. to six, And their quarterback was Sonny Jurgensen. The next week, Georgia came in, and their quarterback was Fran Tarkenton. And we lost 53-6. to six. And then at halftime against Penn, Penn still played Ohio that year. Ohio State, Cal, Notre Dame, Army, Navy, oh. who were still powerhouses. Oh, powerhouses, yeah. Georgia, and, and they had to play two Ivy League games. So we had to play Princeton and Cornell. And then the next year, we were totally in the Ivy League. And in the Ivy League, you cannot recruit out of your area, you know. So uh, it was not cool. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled, like I said. And, that but you... the reason that I bring that up is yeah. every Sunday, I'd go to watch the Eagles play. Brookshire was their cornerback. Yeah, so that's fine. Yeah, of course. Oh, in the booth, yeah. yeah, I know. And then he was in, in the booth with him. And in who was his quarterback on Sunday. that team? In Nor- the 19- Flying Dutchman? You got it. Yeah, you know. Hey, Come on, I know they what you're They won the NFL championship in 60. And they had Tommy Vince McDonald. Lombardi's only loss as a, in, in his playoff history. Yeah. And uh, they uh, and they had Tommy the Bomb McDonald from Oklahoma, and they yep. had Ben Brocklin, and they had uh, and Brookshire was a defensive back. And uh, was and it Nagurski? Who made the tackle on the the not Bednarik. Bednarik, Chuck Bednarik. That, that, yeah. that was game saving tackle. That was earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and he went to Penn Bednarik. Yeah. Fantastic, Bruce. Thank you. Like thank I said, an honor for coming on. Oh, thank you. You bet. That is Bruce Dern. Root for this man to win the Best Actor Oscar coming up on the Oscars of the first Sunday of March. Bruce Dern, and also enough, Mr. Eisen's guy, who I don't know whether he's a producer, or yeah, this kind of thing, yeah. is a Ram fan. <laughs> How about that, Chris Law? Everybody, uh, and, and uh, go see Nebraska if you already haven't. That's Bruce Dern here on the Rich Eisen podcast.
Holy smokes. Wow. Holy smokes. Now, you were told coming in that he was a football fan. Right. But yeah. how many times have we been told by PR folks or handlers or agents, oh, yeah, so-and-so is a football fan. And, again, that is not a requirement to be on the show. The Vince Gilligan conversation proved and many others. The door is wide open. We don't, we don't have to talk football because we like movies. We like television. We like music. We're, this is a pop culture program. Exactly. How great was that? Well, when I when when he started away, right away with, I asked him. Sorry, you know, I heard you're a Rams fan, and I think he saw my shirt and thought this was Rams it's, colors. I didn't want to just. I didn't want to. <laughs> it's Rams colors, and he goes, he goes, oh, I'm not a St. Louis. He's like, I'm not an LA. Rams. He's like, I'm a Rams fan. And he went back to the '50s, and I'm like, oh well, we're good for this. We're young, good for young the blood show. Call. Yeah, and and oh my god, he's got like a photographic football memory. He's um, in a walking encyclopedia. Unreal. And one story, it was just like opened up another door to another story, and then he's like Alfred Hitchcock and Frankenheimer. and Oh, Brockman's going to be bummed he missed this. Yeah, that was pretty cool, for sure. Um, he said one thing to you uh, about the only movie he wouldn't redo was Black Sunday. Yeah. And you asked him why, and he said, because you could do it. And not a slight on you saying that to anyone. No, but it can be done. He doesn't want, I mean, yeah, that was, and that's another I, I reason that, why they won't make, they would never make a movie like Black Sunday. Anymore. I found that fascinating, his, his response. Well, I, I think the people who, who protect the Super Bowl would beg to differ that that can be done. Yeah. I mean, that the no-fly zone that's around Super Bowls now, uh, taking a slow-moving Zeppelin, Zeppelin towards the stadium, I don't think would be able to happen anymore. Man. But holy smokes, what a conversation. And this is well over two hours, so let's wrap things up. You want to yeah. get Brockman on the phone? Yeah, I'll get him on. You uh, from Maine? Let's uh, let's call him right now. All right, actually. let's call we'll, him up right we'll now. Call him blind here, and then we'll and then we'll wrap this thing up. It's been a great show. I uh, want to thank again Malcolm Smith. What a story! And um, and again, uh, I you know the the uh, my Michael Sam take. I hope uh, you know. I hope I didn't lose any listeners out of that. But uh, it is what it is. Those are my beliefs and thoughts. And like I said. We'll be talking football in regards to Michael Sam moving forward. Totally unless right. there's a news aspect of this that's unforeseeable. Um, I'm just going to call Brockman directly with the line going. All right, here. let's do it. Let's do it. Calling Chris Brockman, everybody. And I uh, want to thank – who do we thank for getting Bruce Dern in here? Uh, uh, yeah, that was um, – give me one second. While we dial Brockman here. We're going to pull back the curtain here on the podcast. Yeah. So let you guys hear this. Hopefully Brockman's uh, – Good to go. Let's see what this uh, this mass hole has in store for us. All right. But uh, that was Brandon Nichols from Paramount, well, so I want to thank him. Fellow Penn Stater, as I just found Very out nice. today. Okay, look at you. Yeah. We gonna le- you want to leave a message for him? Greetings from the chilly northeast. Ah. Ah. You, you looked at your caller ID, did you? I did. Well, Law well, gave me a heads up that you were phoning me. Dude, but, uh, you missed... Bruce Dern, which is how epic was that? Epic, epic. We got young blood to call in, which was great. Want to thank Jack, David Cooper for also helping on that front, and um, that was great. I mean, he he knew everything. He was giving us final scores of of games that he saw when he was at Penn in college. Yeah, and he was wow. he, he was giving his final scores of uh, of 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 high school games Let's that just he say, saw. Yeah, Br- Bruce knew. Uh, Everything knew about what, everything. Knew how much a team should win by from Super yes. Bowl ten. It was bringing that up. Let's just say he likes to have a little action on some games. Yeah, <laughs> and oh, uh, Bruce he, is familiar. Right? But let's re- let's run down some of the names that we heard. Uh, Nicholson. Nicholson. Charlton Heston. Alfred Hitchcock. Burt Reynolds. Um, right. Robert Mitchum. 
Robert Redford. Wait, Robert, so, Bob so Redford. Bruce Dern is a bigger name dropper than you, Rich. I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> he, but here's the difference. I, from me, it's dropping names. From him, these are peers. Yeah. Right. That he worked with. Sure. That he worked with. He said Jack's right. his number one guy. Yeah. His, his, his Most talented guy's ever met. And he said that response to you in a quarter of a The question wasn't even all the way out of your mouth, and he had the answer. James Garner. James we got Garner. James Garner. Uh, who else? He's worked with Sidney Pollack, Quentin Tarantino, Tom Hanks. I but mean, these, no, these, these are, are pe- these recent, people he didn't but... mention. But I mean, it just he was telling stories, spinning yarns. Holy oh, smokes! Incredible. Over I an hour that lasted. That was over an hour. You, you need to. You need. You need I've some. Got to set plenty some of free time that... <laughs> here in the two hundred seven. <laughs> so, so I'll be able to listen back. All right. Well, what are you up to? What else are you up to? Anything? Trying, trying to stay warm. I mean, it's been in the teens uh, since I've got here. I'm not really used to this weather. My main blood has thinned out considerably since yeah, I've moved west. You, you going to go to the Haba later and get some lobsters or what? Wow. Go to the Haba and get some clam chowder. No, I went down to Portland Head today and took some pictures. I met my mom for lunch. Uh, we're having a mother Sunday on Wednesday. Oh. Nice. Go to L.L. Bean there in Portland? Don't they have the big yep, L.L. Bean? Yep, going to L.L. Bean in Freeport tomorrow. Nice. <laughs> big trip. Well... This has been a it's been a fun show. When do you get back? When do you get back? Uh, I get back Sunday evening. I'm yeah. headed to Syracuse on Friday to watch hopefully the still number one ranked Orange uh, take on NC State. Oh well, enjoy that, um, and uh, hopefully this this podcast will last some because I'm taking some time next week and then go to the combine. Ah. Go to the combine. Uh, so Brockman and Law are hosting next oh, so week while you're out. Brockman special next week maybe. Oh uh, yeah, you guys want to do it? Look out. Okay, do that. I'll phone in. I'll phone in from uh, from the combine. Let's do, let's do that. Well, I'll be at the combine too, oh. but not until oh, later in the, the week. Oh, the Brockman special next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy. Tell us your thoughts on that Dern conversation because that was off the charts uh, ridiculous. Of course, I will. Thanks for charts. giving me a buzz, gentlemen. Nice to include me. I appreciate me it. Do you have an international shout out that you'd like to give out? Or I'm, I'm going to shout out myself because it's like being international, living being back in Maine right now. <laughs> First Good ever. answer. That's a great answer. And speaking of which, are we going to get? Are we going to get any of these folks? We got to pay off their yeah. Uh, no, their we do have uh, appearances for winning challenges and, yep. and fantasy. I was going to either do it next week or the week we get back from the combine. Let's see if we can come back from the combine. Yeah, our international listeners from uh, Paris. So we're, I think we're going to do a Skype call. Here's what we're going to do the week after we come back from the combine. We'll get a guest on to talk about what we saw at the combine. Sure. And we'll get uh, Morris Senior to do the Oscar picks. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. We've got to do that. We have Excellent. to. And we, we still need to revisit these uh, sports Oscar things that we yeah. had Jerry Ferrara. Ferrara. Yeah, Ferrara ago. brought up, and then, as, as always, it got latex into a black oh, come hole. On. Come on now. Because <laughs> there are meetings. There's all sorts of stuff that Law's doing. All right. Can you set up an outlook uh, to, to yes. so we can talk about yes, that? Yes, set up an outlook. You guys. Let's do it. Getting all right, Brockman. Stay warm. Stay warm. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm trying. Be Adios. Well. Adios. Enjoy Indianapolis. That's it. Later, Brockman. That's at Chris Brockman. At Chris Law. Thank you, sir. Absolutely, Rich. That was fun today. Uh, I want to thank at Malk Smitty. That's Malcolm Smith. That's his uh, Twitter handle. Bruce Dern does not have one. No. Go figure. Actually, he does. At Bruce Dern is him. Is that really his him? His daughter follows him. Okay. And, uh, yeah, but he hasn't verified. tweeted, I don't think, in a no, year and a half. No, he hasn't tweeted, but he does have a Twitter handle. Yeah. These, so, Hollywood, these Hollywood legends aren't really on Twitter very No, much. he's not He's not tweeting. And plus, as, 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 uh, as we found out, there 140 characters cannot contain. Cannot contain. He's, he is 140 characters Man. in one. That was awesome. Check, check out Nebraska. It's in theaters yeah, now. it is. Great. Uh, for at uh, the Eisen Podcast, I'm at Rich Eisen signing off. Stay listening, dear friends.